On this episode of Movies Ruin My Life, we take a look at the collective works of the Coen brothers. All right, so that's Danny. Hello, guys. That's Devin. Hello. And welcome, new panelist Abdullah. Thanks, guys. Really excited. Looking forward to it. It's going to get tense. <laughs> I'm Brandon. <laughs> and, thank you, Danny. Thank you for confirming my identity. Yes. This and is Brandon. Source, I am here. <laughs> I can confirm this is Brandon. And this is our Coen to Brothers be- talk. To the oh. best of my knowledge, okay. this is Brandon. <laughs> we'll do some DNA testing. Um, and this is our Coen Brothers talk. Now, Danny, you and I originally were going to do this talk almost exactly a year ago. We're using the same uh, same printouts from a year ago. So, way to recycle. Being uh, Oh, wow. This friendly. is the same piece of paper. Yeah. Yeah, I can see the... Um, yellowness? The yellowness and the age and the... Um, yeah. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> All right. So, I know that there's a lot of content, a lot of praise across the internet for... For the Coens, for their technique, for all kinds of uh, – for the story writing ability, these sorts of things. So this is going to be one of the purest uh, examples of what we claim to do when we do these sorts of shows. And we are legitimately going to argue the point for a new viewer to the Coen brothers which film they should start into their pretty impressive filmography. Cool? Yeah. An entry point. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Because uh, we don't want to be redundant too much. We're going to put some content, some supporting content on the website. So go to the show notes for this episode, for the Coen Brothers episode on uh, moviesformylife.com. And we've got all kinds of cool stuff that people talked about better than we can. Um, before we get into it, quickly we're going to announce the films that we're each doing. Uh, for the debate, which is going to start the next segment of this episode. And then I wouldn't mind if you guys aren't opposed going through some of the films that we didn't select as a as a first viewing piece for the Coens uh, and talk about a few of them, whether we like them, we hate them, et cetera, et cetera. Cool? Cool. But first, what films are we arguing, gentlemen? Danny, what do you got? I'll be arguing for True Grit, the Excellent. adaptation of the Charles Portis novel. Excellent. Devin? Uh, I'll be arguing Fargo. Excellent. I'll be talking about uh, I'll be talking about The Big Lebowski, which is probably actually the first uh, Coen Brothers movie I saw. Excellent. And I'll be arguing for No Country for Old Men, the Cormac McCarthy adaptation. Nice. So we've got two uh, based on novels, one based on uh, true events loosely, and and one that's just completely out of the Coen Brothers' crazy yeah, fucking point. mind. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. All right, before we get into it, now that we know the films that we are talking about once we get into the debate, do you want to touch on some of our favorites in their catalog that we aren't going to discuss at length today? Anything stand out in their filmography for you, gentlemen? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, their first movie, Blood Simple, um, not only... Uh, it's it's a really good debut. It's fun to watch if you've already seen Fargo because you'll notice a scene lifted right out of Blood Simple uh, for Fargo. Mm-hmm. The um, well, I shouldn't spoil it, but it involves a highway, and uh, 
Just an ill-timed car passing by. <laughs> I find it interesting that the Coen brothers, they were trying to get licensed for, um, what's that 50s song? Uh, it's the same old song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever that is. They were trying to get licensed for that, and it was going to play like three or four times throughout the film because they were you know, obviously recycling some noir plots and stuff. They couldn't get um, permission for it. Mm-hmm. Years later, when they got the VHS release, when they had some industry clout, they did get it, and they reinserted it which surprises me because usually these guys have such authority over their films. Once they're done, they're done. Yeah, that's right. I I shared a link with you this week of a great talk that they did up on YouTube. Um, It's like an hour-long talk just uh, looking at the beginnings and and, uh, endings of all their films. And and they did compare and contrast uh, Blood Simple with No Country. One thing that I found really interesting that they talked about was um, they were at some awards uh, awards show or awards ceremony for – Something that uh, Francis McDormand, uh, who's obviously married to Joel, mm. um, uh, was was getting, and uh, like a lifetime achievement award kind of thing, and um, they watched the film. It was the first time they'd watched it in in quite a few years, and this must have been, I guess, fifteen years ago at this point. And they cut about eight minutes out of the film as a result of seeing. They just went back and and recut the film as a result of it because they just they wouldn't use some of those. Uh, moments. Yes. They, uh, yeah. Joel, I remember musing in the talk something to the effect of uh, um, the, we did it because of the things that we've learned in the past or we hope that we've learned in mm. the past however many years making film, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, like I, I think uh, to your point, Danny, like not having enough clout early on to, to get the song that they wanted, for example, like growing and developing and having having a career and having uh, you know enough clout to be able to get the get the control that they wanted over their movies. Mm. Uh, like it's it's interesting to think about whether or not that was like it was creative decisions that they made because they they developed and they'd chosen different mm-hmm. things because they got better as, as filmmakers. Yeah, or uh, whether they did it because you know they they didn't have the rights to get a certain song mm-hmm. for example right like it's yeah it's, uh, independent filmmakers often have to work within constraints whether which those they are legal relish. Or financial which they tend to relish after the fact yeah. like Quentin Tarantino well, well we but, didn't put the heist in because mm-hmm. you know but well, I'm particularly sure. the Coens even they they've talked in, on many occasions about how financial constraints have actually been a uh beneficial to their to their you know artistic vision um yeah i could see that which is which is interesting and obviously uh joel in particular worked on evil dead and uh, another splatter flick very reminiscent like elements um not that i'm calling evil dead a splatter flick it kind (laughs) of is but you know it's much more um And same kind of financing situation where, you know, like dentists and these sorts of things, financing Blood Simple, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, You have to get a little creative to, uh, you know, circumvent those those things that you would have done if you had the the means, you know, Mm. the resources, so. Yeah. Yeah. One other thing I'd say about Blood Simple that I find interesting is it's the only case where Frances McDormand plays um, what, you know, a female would usually be thrown. She plays the femme fatale temptress role, which she does very well. But it's clear that from, you know, Raising Arizona onward, obviously Fargo, that um, she would be so, so bored and limited in that kind of role. Of course. I concur. Seeing as I kind of brought up the Raimi connection – 
I'm, I'd like to jump to a flick uh, that uh, Sam Raimi gets shot to shit in, which is uh, Miller's Crossing. Mm-hmm. I love that scene, just by the way, I love yeah. <laughs> where he, he fires into the, the fucking, uh, I think it's a garage, right? Yep. And then and then he's standing there all pleased with himself and all the police force <laughs> kind of like, you know, <laughs> nodding in approval. And then they just blast the fuck out of him. Um, you know, it's funny uh, with Miller's Crossing, when you talk uh, to people about it, one of the most memorable things for our generation um that would have seen that film probably on vhs kind of thing they always remember that fucking uh danny boy scene very interesting juxtaposition another interesting use of music now obviously the coens have gotten a lot more sparse in their music selections and uh and how they use them as as their filmography rolls on but i i really like you have these people coming to kill him and and you have uh danny boy playing he's smoking a cigar in his bed puts on his slippers it's very um, it, it's just this very interesting uh, and and very Cohen feel of of um, interesting characters in inopportune situations, and at, it's a good example of it for someone who's. I would say that that would be another interesting one to to start on, but it's not my favorite. So, yeah, as a gateway, man, that's a tough one because mm-hmm. it's so so subtle uh, as a homage to like I remember. It only in second time I saw it, I realized that nobody ever runs out of bullets in that movie. No. They shoot and they shoot and they shoot. <laughs> no, they just shoot <laughs> yeah. away. Also, who's, what's the lead actor's name um, in that film? Gabriel Byrne. Right. Um, his performance is so understated mm-hmm. that it's almost boring. I mm-hmm. could see someone saying, this man cannot act. He's not emoting whatsoever. Except for that gorgeous last shot where he yeah. looks up sorrowfully. But I love how, uh, just in addition to the gun thing, he gets beat up pretty much every day. Mm-hmm. But the next day when he wakes up, his face is... <laughs> This is fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's like every time he turns a corner, he's getting his ass kicked. Yeah. <laughs> Totoro is also excellent in this. In Probably Miller's the crossing. highlight. The yeah. highlight, especially that scene in the forest where he convinces him not to shoot, not to right. shoot him. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. I don't think I'd seen him in anything before I saw that movie. I was mm-hmm. like, who is this guy? I, like, checked out a lot of the I other stuff they, in his. Mm, yeah, they and must have realized there and then that they had a star for yeah, the next for couple sure. movies. Yeah, exactly. Know? That you transition right into Barton Fink, which yep. I love. Devin, you and I have talked about that flaming hallway scene uh, with with Goodman getting off the uh, the fucking elevator and um, uh, Totoro's. Uh, I believe does he handcuff him or is he already handcuffed to the? He's ha- already handcuffed he's already to the bed there, yeah. by the the police. Um, really, really beautiful. Uh, scene extremely disturbing and uh, and you start to really you, you that one for me is where it kicks off in terms of the tension that I now understand exists in, in Coen Brothers films yeah um, that that one I can remember being antsy through and not that kind of like oh I want to turn this off um, that you know um, almost like shaking anticipation uh, I really, really like this film. It's some people love it, some people hate it, but I absolutely adore Barton Fink, and and it, it's it's up there for me in terms of my favorites in their catalog. Certainly, their most uh, it has the most emphasis on uh, the psychological sort mm-hmm. of not only the the situation that the lead uh, John Turturro finds him, mm-hmm. himself in, but uh, the effect it has on the viewer. Yeah, uh, I, th- I think the first time I watched that movie was uh, like when I was quite young. But like, uh, it was the first realization that I had wh- when I thought, "Oh, okay, well, 
I, I feel uncomfortable through this movie, but it's it's um like it's it's effective because of that. Like yeah, it's, it, it, this is exactly what they meant to do, right? Like, I mean, mm-hmm. it wasn't it wasn't one of these things where I thought, okay, well, I should I should be turning this off. But it's it, like that's exactly how you want to feel. Like, you want to feel awkward. You want to feel uncomfortable. But continue watching the movie. You know, yeah. there's, there's a, f- a few movies like that, and I'm like, oh, this is exactly how I was supposed to feel. Mm-hmm. This is a really good performance. It's a really good, uh, really good directing job. You know, it's, it's it's really well done. It's interesting too with this film. A lot of there's there's two kind of thoughts. We we discussed this a little bit in the Stephen King episode, Danny, mm. where we talked about writers writing writer protagonists. Um, yes. And yes. and this film is a really interesting example of that because it's it's almost uh, very dreamlike, and um, you are constantly. This is the character that you see this world through, and you you see everything from his perspective. You experience the world, uh, f- and and so I I wonder if um, if there's anything that you can take away from this. It's kind of like how. How the Coens view, you know, a writing job, for example, something like that. No, that's a good question. I mean, yeah. because so many writers do it, and it's such a tired trope mm. that, yeah, like, poor me, I have to come up with an idea, you know? <laughs> like, like <laughs> a- Anthony Bourdain had a great quote about that. Like, uh, writing is a privilege, you know, compared to other jobs. Any, like, anyone who thinks writing is hard should be made to clean squid for 10 hours. That's what he said. <laughs> because, I mean, here's a guy who cooked in kitchens, and on the weekend he wrote as enjoyment. It's not, it's, sure, it's hard, but it's nothing like other jobs where you do not you're not allowed to be creative well it's something you enjoy right like you do it because you enjoy it not because you have to do it to make ends meet yeah well you either enjoy it or it's a battle yeah but it's still a battle where you get to i don't know you get to call upon your own i mean it's 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 not like uh you know uh, working as a janitor because you have to pay the rent right it's it's you do it because that's what you want to pursue like Mm -hmm. it's it's something you want to do so it's It's different in that sense, you know? Yeah, there's not too many people that uh, go to other people's places of business <laughs> and, and start clean. clean, right? Yeah. <laughs> Whereas there are many a people who, who write. Right, you derive a satisfaction from it. Well, especially because, like, if, if, you're, if you're, let's say, an actor and you want to create your own work, you'll, you'll write, right? Like, yeah. it's, 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 you know, it, it creates, it's a job that creates itself. And if, if you're good at it, you'll, you'll, you know, do really well. I like uh, that. It's a job that creates itself. That's a good quote. <laughs> Seriously. That's good. Thank you. I'm a professional quote maker, quote maker by the way. Yeah, that's what I do in my free time. That's why, that's why he brought you in. <laughs> All right. Let's move on from Bart. Right. Devin, you want to um, throw something in here? What stands out for you in their, uh, in their filmography? Something, a piece for you that you connected with that isn't going to be in our debate? Yeah, Burn After Reading. Um, <laughs> that's such a good movie. It, it's interesting to get like that many like unlikable characters on screen. <laughs> just kind of just be be uh so interested in in like their their downfall more mm-hmm. than anything but but still still captivated by it. Absolutely brilliant writing. Yeah. There's a quote from Frances McDormand where where she talked about I think it was from an ep- uh the Charlie Rose interview mm-hmm. uh for Fargo where she talked about how working with working with the Coens uh while it's you know it's very fun and laid back and it feels like a collaborative endeavor um you want to stick to what's on the page mm-hmm. you know you stick to what's on the page but not because it's not uh 
or, or because they're pressing you to, but rather because you want to. And I think that that film is an interesting example of that. Well, it's, it's a testament to how good their writing is, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, if if the if the actors are saying uh, this is we want to stick to this, you know, they they don't want to change anything in the script. Mm-hmm. It's it's a testament to how good the writing is. Absolutely, you, you, you trust the directors, you trust the writers to, especially, especially to, when you're dealing with the the caliber of, yeah. um, of cast like cast this, that yeah. that, uh, that a movie like this has. I mean, like. Looney. Clooney and Pitt. Yeah. I, I yeah. mean, while while Malkovich, they've definitely done a lot of um, you know more traditional Hollywood roles of late. I mean, their their catalog is uh, uh, both of them is is peppered with movies that they've kind of brought really yeah. brought been the piece that brings it together. Yeah. You know, not mm-hmm. the writing, not the you know. Yeah, they're 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 oftentimes dismissed as celebrities, and people sometimes forget that they're real heavyweight actors like they can they can carry films Mm -hmm. i think the cool thing about those two guys is uh they're they're pretty like they try to shy away from that like paparazzi sort of like being in in the limelight sort of thing Mm -hmm. and uh it it sort of lends more credibility to them them as as artists right if if you're not constantly in in the uh in the tabloids you know you, you sort of I, I think of you as more of an artist, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's not, it's not, uh, you're not doing this because you wanted to be a celebrity growing up. You, you wanted to be an actor. You, 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 you wanted, you're, you're more serious about your art. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's, uh, that's an important thing with those guys. We were talking a little bit before this, Abdullah, with regards to Burn After Reading, before we move on, this is one of the few films in their recent portion of their catalog that, uh, Roger Deakins is not the cinematographer on. Right. And the film does have a little bit of a different feel. Yes, it does. We still, uh, we were talking a little bit about that Every Frame of Painting uh, episode. Uh, Tony from Every Frame of Painting, uh, props to him for doing a great Yeah, check that out on YouTube. Of, Every Frame of Painting, wonderful series. Yeah, and it's uh, he was talking a lot about their, uh, their shot, reverse shot that they do inside which is a very deacon uh so you you're literally in between yeah if two characters are sitting or something like that two characters are sitting across from each other the camera will be between them showing Mm -hmm. uh a more uh, intimate up close perspective so that any facial change or Mm -hmm. expression change is exaggerated any movement forward is looming yeah and also they they shoot in in wide angle they you generally um it's it almost it distorts a little bit yeah. some of the facial characteristics these sorts of things it does make it more comedic when it needs to be and it makes it those more tense uh, when it needs to those be those CIA et office scenes exactly right, at the end of Burn After Reading like yeah. it's it's funny <clears throat> but the other thing that's interesting about their technique too uh, or Roger Deakins specifically but that it still applies in this film is that you you have a situation where that shot reverse shot. Is it really because you're kind of you're just shooting singles at this point? You're mm-hmm. sh- you know close up singles at this point, and it, it it does create a really interesting vibe. So that stays the same, but there's something different about this piece. It just feels different, looks different. Um, it doesn't feel like a Coen Brothers kind of mar- marquee film, if you will, like one of those films that you put up as the like you got to see this because it's Coen Brothers. But uh, I, I it's still like a great piece. The writing's still there, I yeah, guess, and that's I, where I feel the like it's is. not as characteristic of, of the Coens. Mm-hmm. Like if you if you saw that movie first and then saw the others, you'd be like mm-hmm. the same guys. Yeah, you know, you you might you might question it. There's definitely some characteristics like traits that yeah. translate, but at the same time, it's uh, 
Like it's it's not what you would think is the quintessential Coen Brothers movie. Right? Yeah, which is why, for example, like I can't put anything up from the early part. Let's say pre. 96 like pre Fargo Fargo is the dividing line in yeah career. well because, and, and, and it goes back to the control how they right shot like changes how yeah. It, yeah it's like what we were saying earlier about uh the clout that they gained throughout their career uh, having the credibility mm-hmm. to be able to ask for more mm-hmm. um and th- do more sort of like Fargo's yeah, exactly. what six million dollar budget something like that mm-hmm. right so yeah so I guess what I would add about Burn After Reading is, Brandon, I agree with you. And I, I always thought, well, when I first saw it, I saw it in the theater. I thought maybe it was because it was a Washington, D.C. thing. They wanted more fluidity, you know, cars slowly, like the slowly moving down the street, kind of a paranoia feel. But um, I, it is a really liked movie of theirs. I don't know a single person who doesn't, doesn't like, like it. it. It's a solid entry in their catalog, but... I mean, the only person I know doesn't like it. I was leaving the theater, saw it in the mm. theater, and this guy was walking past me and Jessica, my ex girlfriend, um, and he went, said to himself, overcompensating trash. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those film, you know, he felt grifted by the Coens because they made a genuinely funny movie. Like, <laughs> they owed me but, so um, much more. I will say it has <laughs> one of their very few <laughs> truly sympathetic. Losers in Burn After Eating, and that would be the the manager of Hardbody's former yeah. priest. It's the poor guy. Just wrong place, wrong time. <laughs> <laughs> really. Like, he just wants to help help her out and he ends yeah. up hacked to death in the streets <laughs> <laughs> a lot of these a lot of their catalog takes place in the midwest you mentioned that obviously burn after reading does not take mm. place in dc which is interesting they're from minnesota they're from the midwest uh and 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 all of their films though the the settings do play such a large role something else that we talk about sometimes um another kind of interesting standard within their catalog um Obviously, there's, I, I love how they use, just before we move on, their settings as characters that always play such a major role. Whether you look at something like the Hoodsucker Proxy, which if any of you guys want to throw some thoughts in on that. I can't. It's the one movie of theirs I haven't seen. Oh, It's well, the one movie I haven't seen. <laughs> yeah. Or, or something more recent, uh, you know, say, for example, like uh, Inside Lewin Davis, which yeah. you wanted to yeah. talk about That's a little so bit. That was going to be the one. Jules. So oh, good. Say, yeah. yeah. I love that flick. And there's it's another great. one that takes place in the Midwest, of course. So yeah. Well, it, it kind of takes place. Everywhere. He travels the, quite he a travels bit. But like, yeah. Chicago. But it, it is uh, about, yeah, the Midwest for yeah. sure. Yeah. I read a um, review of Inside Lewin Davis the like the afternoon before I watched it, and the writer contended that it was the most wintry of their movies. It had the most winter in it. And I'm like, bullshit. After Fargo, no way. <laughs> and I watched it, and he was right, though. That scene in the diner where he doesn't have enough money. He's nursing yeah. one coffee in his boots. Right. The snow's yeah. coming off him because he's been there for an hour, and that yeah. hitchhiking through the snow. And well, yeah, I feel like cold in, the whole time. I, I, feel, I feel like in Fargo, uh, it, it was wintry because of where it was set. Like it, it's it feels like it's North Dakota, right? Yep. Like it's it's always cold there. It feels like you know, yeah. you know like even the summer feels like it's 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 just a cold place. Yeah. Whereas Chicago, you could think about Chicago summers. You know, like it's mm. there there there's uh, there's a variety of climates, like temperatures that mm-hmm. happen there. Right. Yeah. I feel like uh, if you think about North Dakota, you think about Fargo. Even uh, what, I, I don't know if you guys have watched the TV show, but. It feels like oh, that, yeah. that it's fantastic, but like mm-hmm. it feels like North Dakota is just cold, yeah. you know? And so, desolation, I guess. Yeah, yeah. for sure, for sure. 
Um, do, do you want to talk yeah. more about Lewin Davis? Yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, obviously, Oscar Isaac's performance is yeah, amazing. And we were just talking about that. There's a lot of um, press coming up to this film and, and post the film's release that talked about um, how almost blessed they felt that they found an actor who wasn't just dabbling in a little guitar or a musician who dabbled in a little acting or something right. like this. They found like a, a someone died that, in the that, wool. That, that, like, that, yeah, you know, truly. like I've, I've been there. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, so that was going to be the movie that I was going to talk about. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I, th- I think, uh, at the same time, it, 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 I found it so relatable just because like, I have like you guys, like mm-hmm. I have friends who are musicians trying to make it and sort of, you know, that, that sort of, We've given uh, up all. <laughs> like, yeah, just like Lewin Day, we've joined the Merchant Marine. We're out. <laughs> like, like there's the you know this overdone trope of the starving artist, but uh, it, they do it in such a way that I that I still really enjoyed it, and I was like, this doesn't feel like uh, you know uh, it's it's. Um, they're really reaching. No, okay. not at all. And yeah, I mean, the thing with, really the thing with Oh Brother Where Are Though is like it was so farcical at mm-hmm. times and so comedic that it sometimes felt like they were using the music as a kind of distancing tool. Like, look at these losers. They listen to this. Sort of. Just sort of. But with Inside Lewin Davis, there was a real elegiac quality to it. It was a real celebration of that kind of folk music. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. The, the performance of Shoals of Herring at the nursing home for his dad is just staggeringly good. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, I mean... Uh, some of the uh, the only obvious example would be uh, "Please, Mr. Kennedy," mm-hmm. which is just awful. The topical folk song, <laughs> oh, I and then that the one on stage, a thousand miles. It serves a purpose um, in the story. You know, the one on stage, it's like a thousand miles or whatever. Like the, mm-hmm. yeah, the classic yeah, yeah. folk yeah, yeah. travel, just a piece of crap. <laughs> but I love the movie. I love that the title of the his record is "Inside Lewin Davis" because mm-hmm. that's such a that's so something one of those guys would do. <laughs> and uh, obviously, like I mean. He he's good at comedy too. There's a part early in the movie where he realizes he's uh, the cat has mm-hmm. been you know, and he drops his guitar the second the door slams. Yeah, <laughs> same as the uh, the tension in that uh, cereal eating scene is brilliant when the uh, the soldier is shipping back out. Yes, he's yeah. sleeping and the guy's eating the cereal and mm-hmm. slurping the milk and stuff. And again, that's a, it, it's so interesting because the the tension is what makes it funny. Yeah, and uh, I think they uh, shoot it so well. Yeah. They really do. They do something like this is something I, I feel like uh, the Coens can do better than anyone else. But like, it almost feels like it's a it's a, it's obviously like a serious, um, you know, it's a serious movie. But at the same time, it, it feels like a satire on what you know that folk mu- musician lifestyle, right? Like it's it's very much uh, like they're they're trying to. Uh, just sort of almost make fun of it like yeah. it's it's uh but at the same time it's super subtle so mm-hmm. you 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 think about it as a serious movie but it's like well it definitely straddles is, the line yeah yeah, yeah absolutely yeah like it's 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 cool that way because you you know they they touch upon all the stereotypes that you'd think about but at the same time uh they don't have to go as farcical yeah, as say like spinal yeah, tap or exa- something which yeah, is exactly. amazing yeah yeah but but, but i mean it's it, it's unapologetic and it's you know, uh, we're making fun of this, but Absolutely. in this case, it's like, okay, well, let's uh, really play up all the stereotypes, but still make it a movie that people, you know, could, mm. could cry over. Yeah. <laughs> because we kind of jumped over the Hoodsucker Proxy, I would yeah. like to just kind of go back to it for a second. Um, they are a very interesting, 
writing team in how they deploy voiceovers. If they use a voiceover, particularly in the opening of film, a lot of the time it's um, not service to the um, to the plot inherently. A lot of times it's service to, say, for example, character um, motivation or uh, the char- uh, a particular character's perception on the world, these sorts of things. Um, that film, I've always felt that the voiceover kind of sits awkwardly, but it's, it's a really interesting piece to watch, like to go back and watch cause it's a great movie, but there are these, there's these elements in it that just seem so foreign when you look at even their catalog before that, like you look at, say for example, like Barton Fink right before it, or you look at, uh, Miller's Crossing, same kind of thing. It just, there's I'm assuming that they maybe just took it a little bit too far for me in in terms of, you know, what they were the kind of content that they were servicing or paying homage to, um, but it's still a fun piece. It just it it would probably be closer to the bottom for me. I know it's praised by critics, et cetera, et cetera, but you know, I believe that one might have not done so great at the box office. I never watched this. Yeah. <laughs> and I, but yeah. it didn't cost too much money to make, right. as most of their films haven't. So, no big deal. They still have a career. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost funny how, um, you know, uh, guys like um, Michael Bay get these these just massive studio budgets and just keep getting well, brought back. Well, they're the ones doing a lot of like, the financing, yeah. Just, just raise more Joels and Ethans, you know? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, Put they're, out more $6 million they, movies. Exactly. <laughs> they, they make critically garbage movies that do incredibly well at the box office. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like, this is why you get the money, because it, <laughs> like it's... It's a shit movie mm-hmm. if, if you're if you're a movie watcher, but you know it'll put you know put people in the theater. Yeah, and they'll be like, "Oh, this is that was fun." You know, <laughs> it's so confusing though. The idea you're right, Devin, and that say for and, and Abdul, you bring up an interesting point in this idea that our society has about oh well, it's a popcorn movie. What the fuck does that even mean? <laughs> like. Yeah, like I'm gonna I, watch popcorn. I, I like, I like entertaining movies, movies as, as much as anybody. Yeah. But like, so then what does yeah. it say about a film like Fargo that comes out is just celebrated, wins, uh, you know, all kinds of awards, makes a ton of fucking money, and it was made for six million dollars? Why would you, like you're saying, Devin? Why would you not want to invest in that? Where you know, on a percentage basis, if you had fifteen Joel and Ethan's. And you're just like throwing them some money out of your fucking pocket and be like, I don't know, go make a fucking movie. Well, I mean, I mean, to some people, Transformers Four was more fun. You mm-hmm. know? Like, it was <laughs> oh, more enjoyable to some people. You yeah, know? I mean, I, yeah, but I guess it just <laughs> kind nausea of inducing. It kind of feels sure. like throwing yeah. money at a problem sometimes. You yeah. know, when it's like a, a good majority of of the money that goes into a lot of those movies is, is marketing. It's mm-hmm. not. It, it's not even you know marketing and effects, mm-hmm. it, so that they can make a trailer that looks really cool. <laughs> Has a lot of explosions and and robots and lasers and stuff like that. Yeah, when you're stopped at a traffic light, you see the billboard on the side of a bus or something, or a billboard and a sign on the side of the bus or something like that. Yeah, Yeah. and so you got to almost wonder, like, you know, without all of that money Mm -hmm. in marketing, without all, you know, would would well, obviously they they wouldn't be anywhere near as successful. And and I don't know. It's just it's kind of funny how. I, I don't know, like, people would use words for, um, uh, 
you know, or or they would consider, um, you know, the Coen brothers at, at least up until, you know, um, their recent successes with, with, uh, you know, No Country and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Or recent 2007. Yeah. <laughs> but, but in, in they terms are of their spotty, catalog, you're right. Yeah. But, in terms but of revenue. Now they have that reputation. But if you were to t- have this same conversation like 15 years ago, uh, you know, they would be considered a niche. They would be yeah. considered indie. They would be considered, you know, absolutely Sundance and, or like a uh, film festival or something or else. Yeah. Sort of yeah. Thing. yeah. Yeah. So in any case, any other films that we want to touch on in their filmography that we haven't discussed and that we won't be discussing after the break, gentlemen, raising Arizona is kind of a weird fit. Yeah. I don't know. I <laughs> do not like that movie. comment. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, like I feel like it's a really ham-fisted attempt at comedy. I don't like uh John Goodman's character at all, him and his jailbreaking buddy. I just think it's really poorly done. And I've mm. seen it twice. The only good part is the um the chase scene. The cops chase him and he gets the toilet paper mm. or the diapers or whatever it was. Yep. That scene. I feel like there was no reason for uh, intolerable cru- cruelty. Like, yeah. I don't. I don't know why they did it. I. I just. I, I watched it and I was like, really? Mm-hmm. Like you guys decided to spend money and like use Clooney in this way? Like he's got two really good actors, yeah. and yet it's just it's like it's not good. I think it's roundly acknowledged as the low water point. Maybe of maybe their they're career. worst. Yeah. I don't know. Lady okay. Killers. <laughs> hard for me to there. hate that one just because it's hard for me to hate Tom Hanks in general. Yeah, but yeah, it's not very good. That's actually three in a row that weren't terrific. And I like the man who wasn't really there, good. But intolerable cruelty and lady killers. Generally speaking, I like I like uh, I like Clooney and I like Catherine Zeta Jones, but mm. and it's like, man, why? Like, why did this have to happen? <laughs> it's, it's just a black mark on on your entire like filmography. I don't know. Can for we, for all all those people, like for 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 Catherine Zeta Jones and for George Clooney and for the Coens, like I was like, yeah, oh, man. Well, not every film can be the the Phantom Fair. for, for yeah. Catherine Zeta Jones. <laughs> um, yeah, I can't do uh, the new one, Hail Caesar. Let's just uh, let's go and uh, argue for ours before I'm, we I'm do. Getting... Really, really quick. We've talked about it before with other directors, um, where we talk about um, their kind of revolving cast of characters you know using the same leads and same actors throughout their filmography um and and the coens are no exception to that obviously we we also talked about we briefly mentioned roger deacon's name who's with the exception of i think uh burn after reading and and the one uh, i want to say probably a serious man if i'm not mistaken i, I uh, think then onwards no or only that only those two okay uh since Barton Fink has he missed so from ninety one through to today, with the exception of two films, they've used one cinematographer, which is really interesting. And obviously, they edit their own films nowadays. Um, thought, they didn't I edit it, Blood I was, Simple. I thought it was Roderick Janes. Yeah, we were talking about that <laughs> off air. Their pseudonym Roderick Janes or Janus, um, which they edit under, which is funny. But um, they edit all their own flicks. But yeah, they, they same same crew, same casts. A revolving kind of cast that they have, uh, revolving players, and I, I love that. You know, obviously Goodman, uh, yeah. some of his best work in in his entire acting catalog exists. Well, he's done like four. Yeah, you know, uh, Turturro's been in a couple. Turturro, least, yeah. obviously Francis McDormand yep. goes without saying. William H Macy, yeah, he's done a few. He's done a few. 
Josh Brolin. Brolin's like their go-to right now. It seems like he's in everything. I'd like to see more uh, Oscar Isaac in future yeah. films. Yeah, that'd be yeah, great. Absolutely. I think they work really well together. Yeah. And uh, we were talking about it off here as well, but uh, something tells me that they're not going to be working with Nicolas Cage again after <laughs> that uh, quote that Charlie Rose brought up on that same interview that I was talking about earlier where he said that they were hard to work with. Nicholas because he Cage because said? he couldn't improvise. Oh. <laughs> well, it goes back to what we were saying about like uh, actors saying that they they felt like the script they trust the script, right? Yeah. And when Nicolas Cage goes, "Oh, and improvise," uh, doesn't go over well. Like, Plus, he wasn't some the, of the best uh, writers the... and directors of all time. You know, no, two, yeah. two of the best, and yeah. it's like. Uh, okay, well, I mean, he wasn't the celebrity he is now in '87 either, so you right. could tell him to. Shut up. <laughs> and what's interesting, too, is that uh, both Joel and Ethan have been quoted separately and together saying that they're not the kind of directors that um, like to uh, micromanage. Or... Exactly. Yeah. They don't edit or they don't edit the, the film on the day kind of thing. They don't tell the actors. They don't give them a ton of direction. They kind of give them a rough blocking and this sort of thing of a scene. Right. And let them go, and they do the work in the editing room. So it just seems so strange to me. Like, how crazy was fucking Nicolas Cage getting on the set of Raising Arizona? Like, was he just like, can I use a real pistol in the scene or something? Like, <laughs> what was he doing? Like, can we use real baby shit? Like, what what was he bringing to the table that they were like, I don't know. But it's interesting. One tidbit. Uh, this is from Burn After Reading. Now, uh, they got John Malkovich to record the scene where he's yelling at Brad Pitt on the phone. They got him to do that while he was at Cannes or Con. So think about that. He's um, he's in a hotel room. You know, and say you're next to John Malkovich, and then you just hear him screaming. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to me. Yeah, yeah, they like, and you wouldn't know that he was making a movie. You'd just think that John Malkovich was the biggest diva ever. <laughs> he, he is probably a little crazy in real life, I feel like. Oh, yeah. He's got yeah. a clothing line called Techno Bohemian, <laughs> in which he merges bohemian styles with future techno <laughs> what a loser <laughs> i like to think that he exists in that world that happens when john malkovich goes into yeah. john malkovich 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 malkovich, malkovich, malkovich. <laughs> it's the jazz singer <laughs> malkovich malkovich had a I had a running joke with some old friends of mine like um a movie like being john malkovich but with someone else who not only is the most boring person you can think of but has the most boring name and the best we could come up with was uh being bill prittle who's the second guitar player for trouble church <laughs> it's like you know once a week you go up and sing red and make your 600 bucks go <laughs> being bill prittle yeah, and the and the whole time the uh, the whole time that. Greg Norrie is just giving you the fucking evil eye because yeah. everyone's like, play red, the one good treble charger song. Just before we move on from treble charger, oh, yes. isn't that the saddest moment when that switch happened? Like when, when Greg started being the yeah. singer. Yeah, <laughs> like that's that's. Is it the one good? Treble Charger song, or, or is it the one that got big? Like, oh no, no, American it, Psycho was huge. Yeah, and so was yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. thought you were going to say the sad moment for Treble Charger was when Greg started gelling his hair in spikes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, that that happened about the same but, time. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. Bill was the leader, and then just at some unagreed upon point, it was just Greg, <laughs> just him singing his pop punk song. <laughs> 
All right, let's take a little break. We'll come back, and Danny, you're going to kick us off? Sure. sure All right, right, cool. So we're going to come back, talk about True Grit. Sounds good. Cool. Let's do this. Hey, guys. It's Devin. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Anyway. Oh, by the way, I was thinking about that... uh, um, okay, a more boring so version of uh, in, uh, being John Malkovich. And what I came up with was uh, uh, being Scott Wolf. That would be a good one. Mm-hmm. That's Party. great. Party, being Party Scott of five. Wolf. That is great. <laughs> being Scott Wolf. That would be my go-to. That guy is just... He's literally just sitting somewhere waiting for the phone to ring. Like Bradford Howe by uh, Much Music? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Wow, yeah, yeah, that was a... <coughs> Wasn't he on, like, CP24 for 15, 20 minutes? It was a quick spark. Yeah. And, uh... I just remember the guys at Edge 102 making fun of him because they had a clip from an award show the previous night, the Much Music Award show, and um, there was an interview, and someone was like, so, Brad, what have you been up to? And he's just like, uh, not much. And the, the radio guys are just like, ah! Oh, not much, just got fired from the easiest job in the world. Uh, not doing a lot. All right, so we're back. And, Sir Danny, you are up first, Monsieur... I'm up. All right. I'm talking about True Grit, which came out in 2010. Uh, it was a John Wayne movie, as most people know, but the Coens didn't refer to that. They went back to the novel the, by uh, Charles Portis. Mm-hmm. I haven't read it, so I don't know how faithful the adaptation is, but if it's anything like No Country for Old Men, it's pretty close. Um, True Grit, to me, uh, I think it's a really good entry point into their catalog, even though it's a complete departure in a lot of ways. For uh, example, most Coen Brothers movies uh, explore Jewish identity to some extent. Obviously, a serious man, but it's in you know most of their other films as well. So uh, that obviously is completely absent from True Grit. In some ways, it's a traditional western, but um, I guess what I like about it is again with other Coen Brothers movies, there's always like a, a, a lack or a truancy of hope and heroism. Uh, the only other movie that has a clear hero to me is uh, Fargo yeah. with uh, you know Detective McDormand, yeah. Gunderson. Again, uh, female protagonist. Mm-hmm. True Grit is their second with a sharp focus on a female protagonist. And I like how it is, you know, the classic reversal. True Grit is supposed to be Rooster Cogburn. You know, you got Maddie Ross avenging her father's death. And she's amazing. She enlists the services of a old school Wild West lawman. You know, he's of a dying order. But... Um, you know, she enlists him because he has true grit. Of course, over the course of the film, she proves herself to be the one with grit. So it's kind of a coming-of-age tale because she's negotiating her way. You know, the first 20 minutes of the film, a lot of people try to overcharge her for weaponry or horses. or mm-hmm. And then, of course, Labeef and uh, Cogburn try to set off on the trail of her father's killer without her. Uh, but yeah, kind of a loss of innocence thing. And... Um, Again, like Inside Lewin Davis, the recent Coen Brothers movies have had a real kind of elegiac quality to them. There's a, a streak of sadness, uh, even, you know, amid the violence and the comedy. So, for me, the first moment of heroism in in the movie is when Maddie, you know, takes her horse across the river. You know? Absolutely. They're waiting on the other side. Jeff Bridges, you know, with his one beady eye. Instead of complimenting Maddie, he just says, that's a good horse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, you know, Labeef starts spanking her and uh, 
Cogburn, you know, pulls a weapon on him. But before that, the, the exchange is great because uh, she asks him, are you going to allow this Texas Ranger or whatever? She refers to him in somewhat of a derogatory manner. Are you going to allow this to happen? Yeah, are you going to allow this to happen? And he's like, he, he's still thinking about it. I don't suppose I will. Exactly, yeah. and pulls the gun. <laughs> yeah, and then Labeef, you know, announces his intention to continue hitting her, and he's going to be the last mistake you ever made. So... Uh, obviously we have, uh, two very different, uh, lawmen. Got Rooster Cogburn, who, like I said, he's an, he represents the Wild West. Like, he doesn't have a uniform. He's quick to violence. Not a lot of logic going on. A lot of emotion. Whereas Labeef is a Texas Ranger. It's, he represents the professionalization of law enforcement. He's got expertise. He's got, uh, a strong set of morals. He doesn't drink. And he has, uh... A strong sense of identity. He's always referring to himself as a Texas Ranger. So um, it's fun to watch them argue. Uh, you know, there's a scene where Rooster stays up all night drinking, <laughs> and then they get in a, a accuracy fight. You know, yeah. they try to shoot corn. Great scene. And uh, but Maddie proves herself really capable. I mean, uh, a, a very emotional scene in the movie is when the Rooster says the trail's gone cold. They're not going to continue looking for Maddie's father's killer. And uh, Labeef agrees with him, and he's about to set off into the night, and he says to Maddie, uh, You've earned your spurs. That is clear. I extend my hand. Which is <laughs> extremely formal, but I mean, he's inducting her into a world of, you know, uh, male codes, you know, old-fashioned ways when a handshake really meant something. You only shook the hand of someone you truly respected. Mm -hmm. So Labeef shaking her hand is a rite of passage, both for him in accepting her and for Maddie. So she's already experienced the loss of innocence with the death of her father, right? There's a lot of Coen Brothers movies that begin with someone having already died. But um, with this, she's kind of lost her novice status as a cowboy, wrangler, traveler. She's shown that she can keep up with these men. So for me, on a personal level, I mean, it's uh, it hit me pretty hard. I'm uh, – I uh, – I suppose if you've been following this podcast, you know that I've had my ups and downs with substance use. And the last time I was uh, detoxing from uh, Oxy, I was three days out of, into you know sobriety. And I was watching that when you come off drugs, you any little thing can get you crying because your emotions have been kind of repressed for so long. And so the scene at the end of this movie where Rooster has to first, he's trying to take her to a safe house by horse. The horse you know collapses and he shoots it. And then he runs the rest of the way. Finally gets there and you know it's shoots his weapon. Scene. And then uh, yeah, he goes, uh, "I've grown old," <laughs> <laughs> which is the last line in the movie. That's mm -hmm. the last thing he says. So then it's his last line in the movie. His there last is a narration. Line. You know, she from has more. Maddie, yeah. yeah. So then we're treated to five minutes of you know an older Maddie Ross. She lost her arm in the snake bite, and um, she's uh, trying to find him. She goes to a Wild West show, and this is kind of sad because that's how most of us experience the Wild West, you know, mm. the kind of ridiculous devices the West falls to preserve its tradition, you know, just sh like these kind of sideshow things where guys get up on stage and shoot their guns. Mm. And it turns out Rooster's been dead for a couple of days, so she just missed him. And uh, even though it's an adaptation of a book, it's not a very eloquent last line, but it's a true one. She just says, you know, time just gets away from us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which, I mean, yeah, that's that's life, man. And, uh, I mean, I think Maddie is a, a true hero. Her, uh, 
her and us, you know, Detective Gunderson are both. Uh, it's very easy to dislike Maddie because she's a little snot nosed and smarty pants, and she likes to boss people around. So she's not as easy to like as a uh, uh, Francis McDormand's police officer, but. Um, her actions over the course of the movie give her the heroic right to say and do whatever the hell she wants, especially in the scene where she finally gets revenge mm-hmm. and uh, shoots her father's killer clear off, off a cliff. A cliff. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not only does she shoot him, he goes flying off a cliff. It's <laughs> awesome. And that's, of course, Josh Berlin played yeah. perfectly. So I think that's about all I have to say for that. True Grit, just... Um, Obviously, it's weird of me to recommend an anomaly in their filmography, but it's um, you can tell when a Western has been either lovingly wrought or if it's been just a kind of rote. You know, some of the Westerns that came out in the 70s and 60s were just kind of, let's make another Western. Whereas this one, it's clear that they have a lot of love for their subject matter. And you'd have to, to work with both children and animals on a film set, which would be just a nightmare. Absolutely. So that is my recommendation for True Grit. A few qual- follow-up questions, and we'll open up the floor to everyone. I wanted to ask you, this is, if not their most sparse, uh, along with mine, I guess, one of them, uh, in terms of scoring. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. You're doing No Country, and, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's uh, a testament sense, to yeah. No Country that I didn't even notice yeah. until the end. Yeah. yeah I was just on the edge of my seat, literally. No, no other music, yeah. Yeah, there's not much going on there, music. Yeah. And it's brilliant, because how many times do we talk about on the show, the or, or just in real life, the emotional resonance of a piece and how that's elevating uh, the, the visuals on screen? Mm-hmm. Um, to have something so powerful and and uh, aesthetically compelling that it can capture that, uh, I'm also strengthening my own argument for later. <laughs> yeah, um, it's it's pretty. It's an incredible piece. I was saying to Devin earlier this week because I actually skipped this one because as also if you follow the show, you know I'm a big John Wayne fan. Mm-hmm. There's a whole ton of uh, of his film catalog sitting behind you, Devin, and um, and a ton of Clint Eastwood also. Ironically enough. So, um, but in any case, I, I recently only saw it, Mm. um, and I was absolutely overwhelmed with the aesthetic of it. It just, the color work is amazing. The pacing is brilliant. Yes. I didn't even feel like I was watching a quote unquote Western, Mm. um, and for the first maybe 30, 40 minutes, because of the interesting dialogue and and the interesting dialogue choices and the compelling characters, the very very strategic placement of expository dialogue. Yep. Um, I didn't even realize I was watching a period piece. Right. And There's a true brilliant. moment of uh, uncertainty there, where they're waiting in the snow, and out of the shadows comes this figure on a horse that appears to have a bear face. And then as he comes in, you realize this man is wearing a a toque that's basically a bear's head. Yeah. <laughs> and he's just so... He's a bit of a witch doctor, you know. Would any of you like some medical care? <laughs> um, not from you, man. Yeah, we're good. <laughs> but yeah, no, what you said is exactly... If you can somehow convey emotion and uh, 
the feeling of a montage, but without relying on music, you have some really strong scenes edited together. Mm. Uh, yeah. Because it is lazy. Some filmmakers will just throw some music on knowing it'll tug at the viewer's heartstrings. It's a really, really, really lean movie. Really lean, incredibly edited. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sound work, again, also something that we didn't talk about in, in, their, in the rest of their catalog is is magnificent yeah it's spot to, on to your point danny um when it comes to like that adding music just to just to try to get uh you know an emotion out of out of people it's it's feels a little like manipulative and yeah it feels like you're overcompensating for not having something else right you're not earning so, it yeah, yeah yeah it's like okay so i've added a song that might induce you know uh not um like nostalgia or or something like that whereas it's like okay well you haven't done it in a way that feels pure to me yeah you know? it can be a cheap trick sometimes yeah, like the 100%. way that south park joke you know it's a montage yeah, <laughs> yeah. like uh and one other thing i guess i point out is that super long shot of matt damon's labeef character taking down uh the uh one of the lead villains um oh yeah. my god and then You're, getting lassoed and dragged by on the horse. That's and, great. But you don't know that villain him. is dead until he falls off the horse. Mm-hmm. And it's a 200-foot-away shot. So you just oh, see him fall him at the end. Oh, from Damon's yeah. vantage point at, uh, at the cliff And Matty uh, has some kind yeah. words for him in that moment, yeah. which I thought was really... Ace oh, shot! Yeah, real excited <laughs> kid. I, 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 felt, I loved um, it. Just a moment of innocence kind of returning to her. Yeah. She's been so stoic the she whole film. She can be childlike. And mm. also very beyond her years. Yeah. That's such a versatile performance. I was I was reminded of that shot when I watched The Revenant when you see that long shot of, yes. of the guy on the horse and it's like, oh, he's dead the whole time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, oh, okay. that was so good. It's yeah. very Shane, isn't it? Yeah. 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 I was like, man, <laughs> this is, uh, yeah, I, 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 remember wa- like, I, I remember watching The Revenant and thinking, oh, man, that's so that's so like reminiscent of, of that of that shot yeah. yeah i remember well we were talking sorry listeners but earlier we had a joke of um funny things that audience members have said in the theater that we bore witness to <laughs> i went to see the revenant with my mother and uh, about halfway through the film she turned to me and said man this guy's having a bad week <laughs> <laughs> all right any final thoughts just watch Grit? it just find it and watch it <laughs> All right, let's take a little break. We'll come back and we'll get into... Do you want to go reverse chronologically? Or do you want to just go around the table, gentlemen? Go to around the table. I'm All right. Whatever you guys choose, really. So Devin's going to go next with his pick, which is Fargo, correct? All right. All right, so we're back and... <laughs> After that very long break. If you, if you watch the video, uh, nothing's <laughs> happened. <laughs> We're in the exact same position. <laughs> Sir Devin, your uh, film? Not knighted just yet. I'm still waiting on that one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's coming in the it's mail. It's coming in the mail. <laughs> or do they I have love, to put this? I love this, coming in the mail. This... <laughs> <laughs> they put the sword in the mail? <laughs> it's my Saturday night coming in the mail. <laughs> yeah. It's good times. Ooh, yeah. So I like it. <laughs> I like it. It's, it's not good. I'm sorry. Speaking of down. coming in the mail, <laughs> uh. I'm going to be talking about uh, Fargo, which was actually my my first uh, uh, movie that I saw of theirs. Um, Me too. Same. It was my my first experience of the Goins. Mm. Um, 
And I, I don't think I appreciated it as much at the time until I saw some of their, their other work. I, I think that, that, uh, kind of made me revisit it a little bit differently. At, at the time, of course, it, it, it was like the first, um, huge, uh, uh, like, uh, awards show, uh, praise that they got. And I Absolutely. think that, that kind of, uh, clouded my, uh, yeah, because you're My too cool for that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, when when something is getting that much, um, you know, that much praise from that many people, it's it's easy to think, you know, may, maybe this is a a bit of a purposeful, um, you know, kind of uh, award movie. You know, I I don't know. Is that like an yeah. asshole thing no, to I, say? I, 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 I feel I feel that way with like a, a lot of my friends and myself. Uh, there, there's something that's being watched a lot i'm like is it is it really that good I don't yeah know. like is it is it too middle of the road you know to, it's to, a, be, to be to be sort of like pandering almost you yeah. know like is it is it i think is it's it, a natural reaction to be skeptical yeah if something yeah. is, is suddenly so well received and that, very popular yeah. like, you assume what? it's quite vanilla generally yeah. Yeah. yes yeah absolutely like well, Jerry, yeah, Jerry Maguire, for example, mm, that was yeah. talked about all year. It's I hated not- that movie the yeah. first time I saw it, and then I've, a, a, as the talk has dissipated. That's a great example, Danny, because I've I've subsequently kind of enjoyed the movie the more I watch it. Yeah, yeah. but it was yeah. really talked up that year. It mm-hmm. just I feel, I feel like early on that movie. Uh, the next year was Fargo. The, the reason I revisited it was film. because uh, Kelly Preston was was naked. And Don't ever like, stop fucking me. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Don't you ever? The like, Academy man, Awards this is hot. goes to that is a hot fucking scene. <laughs> That's yeah. a great scene. Yeah, just tits flopping everywhere. I was like, man, this is great. Yeah, and then after <laughs> that, she goes and gets herself a strawberry from the fridge. It's like, yeah. Yeah. Just watching her eat it. What is this? Edit music? this out, please. Yeah. <laughs> That's not going to happen, no. though. Sorry, Devin. Fargo. I think we were talking about Fargo. Yes. <laughs> so uh, I think one of the things uh, that kind of pushed me away from this movie that is now probably my favorite uh, thing about it is how it's such a perfect example of something that I think the Coens do so well. And I think it's like one of the least obvious examples of it, but it's just this sort of uh, linear time-wise, but but just uh, like so expanded um, a scope of, of a story. There's never a side plot that, that gets like a scene or two. Mm-hmm. Like there's never a character that, that um, you know, is, is there just to you know serve a purpose and and get out of there Mm -hmm. it's like everybody every every um uh part of this story is completely fleshed out there's there's no filler yeah Um, exactly and so and so um you know to have um uh, have have all these interweaving stories introduced kind of one by one and and they don't really come together until the crescendo is is such like a great um yeah something that that the coens i think do specifically well i think it's a great thing in in film now i i mean i again at the time i think i think that was something that put me off just because it does it it can be um uh a bit of a drag if if what you've been watching is is just um your your sort of typical linear uh films right with with uh <laughs> and and that was where I was at the time, right? Um mm-hmm. I, I this movie came out in in 96. So you were watching a lot of bad boys. Yeah. The Rock. <laughs> <laughs> I I think um uh Stormare uh we we're big fans of uh oh, of Stormare. We come from a, a household of of big Stormare uh fans and I think this is is table wide. 
such a, a perfect example of of just the way that he's um he's able to like convey intention with without like any words at all mm-hmm. like the um y- you know you you kind of know like when you know when the uh the cop walks up to the car mm-hmm. and he flashes the the flashlight in Stormare's eyes you get, you just you can see like Stormare just knows this is going poorly yeah. and is going to do something fucking <laughs> rash. You know, he knows Buscemi yeah. isn't going to take care of it at that point. And Buscemi's got the fifty dollar bill. It's like you you, you already know that this is going to escalate further. Yeah, and like um, the car, the the tension sort of sort of growing between uh, Buscemi and and uh, and Stormare. It's like he doesn't say a word. He never expresses that he's that he's not really happy. Uh, you know with. Yeah. Steve Buscemi fucking nagging him yeah. all the time, and 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 uh, you know obviously that kind of kind of uh, <laughs> builds up to the point where where you know <laughs> Buscemi has this this uh, just just great uh, breakdown uh, uh, near the end where you know everything has gone awry and and he's you know saying he's going to take the car uh, that they get out of this ransom deal, uh, and you just see this like this moment of like. <laughs> like Peter Stormare just reflection. looks up yeah. and it's like you know you know it's it's what's going to happen at that point you don't know that that it's going to be with an axe mm-hmm. puts the so TV quickly. dinner down mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> grabs the axe uh and and even um uh when um the seeing the frustration in his face when Steve Buscemi's trying to get the TV working mm-hmm. and how frustrated he's kind of been the entire time with uh um uh William H. Macy's wife um mm. And you just kind of you you know like Steve Buscemi is leaving him alone in this situation. It's, it's going to go badly again. Yeah, it, it's uh, used very well there, and uh, I think um, um, No Country for Old Men uh, is another great example of of that with a, an, an antagonist. So whether it's it's um, oh yeah the nonverbal mm-hmm. just conveying menace and intent, like you said, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I think that's that's generally what Stormare does. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know if that's a Cohen thing or if that's just Stormare being Stormare. You know, because mm-hmm. um, he's not a, a, an extremely verbal. I, I I don't know how how. Um, well, his English isn't the best. Yeah, yeah. It's more exaggerated in Fargo. In yeah. Spun, he's sort of like that, and in his Seinfeld episode, he's pretty dumb. But in Fargo, he's just Citrus, like Citrus. He's more communicative. Mouth breather, <laughs> mm-hmm. And what's that? Um, Romero film from the 90s where the protagonist or, or anti-hero or whatever, well, he's not really, he's a killer, but uh, has the white mask and Stormare is fucking his wife. And that's one of the things that sets him off. I can't um, think of the name of it. Yeah. Good flick. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. But... I think... Um... Trailer is fucking horrid, though. So don't... If you, if you like, Google right now, movie where Stormare is fucking mask guy's <laughs> wife. Uh, yeah, don't watch the trailer because it's going to throw you off the flick for sure. I think uh, I, I and I, I apologize for jumping around so much here. There's so much, uh, so much to talk about mm. uh, with this film versus all of your guys' films, which aren't the best mm. to start oh, okay. with. <laughs> the, uh... But uh, the, just the uh, I wanted to talk about um, the the accent um, that that yes, um, I, I, like I don't know how. Um, you know whether whether it was just because they were writing the story about the place, or whether it was because the the place has has such importance to to this to them, story, yeah. but but just the the kind of um, almost like um, borderline insincerity 
of of that the um, that sort of uh, Midwest mm-hmm. accent. Yeah, like, oh, just, hi, how are you? It's called uh, Minnesota nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's like every everything is so nice uh, and so it's so, like oofta. nothing and no one is ever shocked by anything it's it's always just like you know this this um the same reaction to to everything like Mm. when they're uh investigating the the uh the car wreck um uh france mcdormand and the other uh officer and she's just kind of just kind of explaining like what what happened she's just looking over this scene uh, and and you know, kind of piecing it together, um, you know, the, these guys, uh, uh, the officer was you know pulling somebody over. He was shot. These guys just passed, passed by. by, and and just like uh, great moment when Stormare gets into the driver's seat <laughs> with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. By the way, pulls the UE, drives <laughs> past them, stomps on the brakes, and they're in the fucking ditch. Great. The the, uh, the you know, and then she's she's going to be sick, and he, he's like, oh, are you okay? And she's like, no, I don't know, just the morning sickness. Like, she's just completely okay <laughs> with this entire, like, yeah. gruesome scene. Mm. Like, how, how uh, just just absolutely gruesome the shooting of that cop is done when mm. Stormare shoots him in the head, and his head leaks for, like, a good, yeah. like, five seconds on Steve Buscemi's lap. While yeah. She's, just, like, completely unaffected. Buscemi's like, oh, like, yeah. boy. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. Stormare's is like, get him off the road. <laughs> You'll take and care of it, eh? You know what? That's that's actually interesting because the only people that, that don't really um, – like, it makes the people who don't have that accent mm-hmm. seem so completely out of place. The, the father, uh, Stan Johnson, <laughs> this guy that everybody just, just looks to for his approval. <laughs> we should have let Stan have a look at it. <laughs> Francis McDormand just has this kind of air of, of just – everything's gonna work out fine like it's mm. not you know um and is always kind of thinking of a few steps ahead you know they could they could easily have had the end of that movie go go the opposite uh, direction. the opposite direction but you know that it won't which would because, be she's, because she's pregnant <laughs> because she's the the just Ups this stakes. abject professional you yeah. know just no no uh um, well, especially in that that the William H Macy scene where she's interrogating him at the car dealership, mm-hmm. and he's just really losing his cool, and she's just you know not not pushing at it, even though she she has already completely figured this out. The car mm-hmm. was stolen from the lot, and he knows something about it. Mm-hmm. She knows that, but you know you know is just uh, you know that that using that that kind of. The insincerity of of the of the the um, you know the accent and the, the mannerisms and stuff like that to just seem like this aloof like kind of uh, person in that 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 situation like giving him the making him feel as though he's he been given the, the benefit hand. of the yeah. doubt the entire time when when like she knew from the moment she walked in from like mm-hmm. the first you know the first uh, uh, question she asked she she had figured it out. I think it's also um, it's it's so funny and and it doesn't even uh, not in any obvious way like the the Big Lebowski for instance I think is probably the funniest movie from their catalog but it's very purposeful right like it's very um, there's there's jokes you know there's 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 uh, punchlines there Fargo doesn't have any of that but is still like. It sticks out um, because it's uh, or from you know the the other stuff in their catalog to me just because of of how like 
how much you feel on both sides at once when when that that asshole parking attendant is is giving Steve Buscemi a hard time. Or I don't know, he's not an asshole. He's just doing his job, but he's just just you change. You empathize with Steve Buscemi so much in that moment, yeah. and then when when um, uh, William H Macy drives by and the parking attendant has just been shot, the 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 other one because Steve Buscemi's already had this right. He shot a different one. Yeah. Stressful experience. You know exactly what happened in that moment. He's like, because all all you see of that the interaction between the parking attendant and Buscemi is Buscemi holding his neck and saying, "Open the fucking, open the fucking." Game. Yeah, a lot of the humor in Fargo comes from slightly inappropriate. Like, I mean, at the very beginning, uh, Jerry Lindegard's an hour late for the meeting because yeah. of a miscommunication, and then later, well, you got the bickering brother, like the bickering brother vibe. You know, I, I won't talk. See how you like it. You know, but then also. So my favorite part, my favorite funny part of the movie is, you know how um, Norm, uh, Marge's uh, husband, is constantly eating throughout the movie? Mm -hmm. In every scene, he's either eating or... There's a scene at the police station halfway through the movie where a different cop comes over and says, Hey, Norm, I thought you were going fishing. Norm has a mouthful of sandwich, and he looks kind of irritated. He's like, after lunch. (laughs) 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 What? Does this guy ever work? Does he just eat? And then, uh, wait, what other thing? What other thing? Uh, it's towards the end where Jerry realizes that the jig is up, the, the noose is tightening. Uh, he gets home and his son is like, Dad, are you going to go out and look for Mom? And he just goes, I'm going to bed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, are you going to call Stan? Because yeah, 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 Stan, yeah. Stan calls with, like, uh, yeah, you know, asking about how the, the money um, right. exchange went. Like, <laughs> yeah. No, I'm going to go to bed. Because, one, I know that mom's been kidnapped. <laughs> and, two, uh, it's probably the last time I'll ever get to sleep in this bed. <laughs> so I'm going to do that. Uh, the the uh, uh, You just reminded me with uh, uh, talking about Norm, the, uh, the uh, probably, like, I, I don't know, probably like the funniest uh, one of, well, I don't know. I don't know if I would call it the funniest moment of the movie because it is kind of heartwarming at the same time. At the end of the, the movie when he gets the uh, the three cents the stamp, stamp. <laughs> like yeah. that's what he does for work is he's just, he's just been really just painting the hell out of this stamp that yeah. he's trying to get get through and she has to encourage him like here's a woman who just solved probably the biggest crime in the history of this (laughs) brain earth yeah Yeah. and she's telling her husband how great it is that he you know got on a three cent stamp (laughs) when they raise the price of the stamps then people need those yeah i didn't think about it that way i think uh one of the one of the things uh which is cool about fargo is it's it's uh framed as as a true story yeah, mm. like even yeah. when I wa- even when I watched the TV show, I, I kept having having to go back and be like, "Did this actually happen somewhere?" Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> it did, yeah. And I think uh, it, it's like there's a lot of absurdity Absolutely. in it, but but at the same time, it's like, oh, uh, may- maybe this draws you into it and makes you think, okay, this, this could have actually happened somewhere, you know? Like it's mm-hmm. it's it's a little different from. Well, I'll talk about this in a bit, but uh, like. The Big Lebowski is sort of, uh, you know, there's no air of this. This might have actually happened, but there's there's characters that are inspired by by you know real life, right? The unhinged Vietnam vets, yeah, stuff like yeah. That. yeah. Whereas Fargo, it, it differs in the, in the sense that it's sort of absurd, but it still draws you back in by by claiming to be a true story, and and you know you sort of. 
Sort yeah. of have to wonder, like, could something like this have happened at some point? You, know, you feel like it, may, it could yeah. have happened. It's yeah. interesting yeah. what you're saying because you have this film in Fargo that's mm-hmm. the events played out that way in real life, but the characters are the the larger-than-life imaginative right. Right. element of the piece. And then with Lebowski, you have the characters um, oh. that are kind of archetypes of real life living in this grandiose situation right, right it's the inverse i like that i i just i i completely forgot to mention this and now there's no context for it because i already talked about uh the funniness of this movie uh so i just want to give a shout out to that one scene where the cop is driving down the street and a guy waves him down and uh, gives him the the uh, the exchange between him and Buscemi. He's like, so so this guy comes down. He says, I'm going crazy up there at the lake. Uh, you know, I, you know where I can get some action. I said, what kind of action? He said, you know, some woman action. So I said, oh well, I'm not. Gonna. And it's just yeah. no periods in the entire. My favorite part of that monologue is where he's like, well, the last guy who messed with me, he's dead. What do you think of that? And I said, that don't sound like too good a deal for him. Yeah. <laughs> He called me a jerk. Well, you didn't use the word jerk, but you know what I mean. So I came home and told the wife, and she told me to phone it in, so I phoned it in. <laughs> and then it just stopped. Yeah. <laughs> and you just watch it, it's like, who is this guy? Yeah. He's had such a rich interior life. And just that guy in the parking lot attendant, these characters are just like, that's but why it, it doesn't go off on and tangents. It's, and it's, because it's populated with these rich characters. And it's the only thing that isn't fleshed out in the entire movie. It's the, it's the only... But I, it I was, really kind of is, because he just got this guy's <laughs> yeah. entire it's fucking life story. Yeah. <laughs> But but like I I, I was uh, I actually first uh, thought of it when I was talking here when I was saying what what a like perfectly fleshed out story it was and that's like the one thing that isn't and it's just this great like just punchline dropped like right in the middle of the 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 film it's it's like the the fucking best scene in this entire movie it's just this I've guy. seen people argue that that's their favorite scene in the movie yeah, yeah. absolutely and like just the. Oh, was that up by Bear Lake? Well, I was closer to the, you know, whatever other lake, so I made that assumption. <laughs> I don't know. It's fucking Bear. They should give that guy more roles. Yeah. Any final thoughts on Fargo, gentlemen? Uh, I think uh, the reason, like, uh, to, to argue for, for Devin's point, uh, I, I think uh, this movie sort of would be a first watch uh, for the same reason that Lebowski would be. I, I think it really um, characterizes uh, and like personifies and filmifies uh, <laughs> what what the uh, what the co- like the you know the, the thing that I like most about the Coen Brothers movies is sort of like dark comedy. Sort of, it, it, it's a really good marriage of of the really serious shit and and like the really really funny stuff. Like it's it just you know um, it, it finds humor. Like we were saying about the uh, with the with the wood chipper scene. Mm-hmm. Like the, you feel no, you know, you don't feel horrified. You don't feel sad that this mm-hmm. person, you know, this, this guy's body's been put through a, a wood chipper. You're you're just kind of like, oh, okay, that, that happened. Yeah. That's, you know, fine. Funny. I'm, I'm fine with fine. it. You know? Yeah, it's good. You know, it's, uh, it's the same with like Bunny's toe, right? Like in, in The Big Lebowski, it's like, well, I don't know. She's so, got nine more. Yeah. Well, I mean. Let's uh, we'll wait. It's we'll wait to talk about that. Definitely like a yeah. dis- <laughs> it's definitely like a distillation of all their best stuff. It's got crime and yeah. Yeah, comedy and yeah. um, inept 
people. Yes, yeah, which is which makes for some of the best humor, right? Just, yeah. just idiots. Yeah. I guess I, the only thing I would like to add is that uh, the scene with her um, Asian friend who lies about having a dead wife. You know? mm-hmm. She fought so hard, Margie. That is one of the most awkward scenes I've ever seen. Yeah. It's just excruciating where mm-hmm. he tries to sit beside her. <laughs> no, I, I prefer you over there. <laughs> <laughs> It's just awful watching this guy fall apart. And just and and the way she brings it uh, brings it back from that a little bit, like just just so so purposeful and, and masterful in everything that she does in this goddamn movie. She's just like, well, because because we're talking, I, I don't want to turn my head. <laughs> like every, t- and it's just just so masterfully like brings down the, the yeah. She the controls tension. every scene she's in. Yeah, both. Within the context of the story and and on her with her on screen presence, excellent masterful point. performance. Yes. Yeah. Totally. Mo- movie does something else uh, really well that the Coens do, which is everyday people you see. Like it's it's uh, they're not they're not special in any way. Mm-hmm. You know they're, they're ordinary people, but there's something weird going on. <laughs> <Right>. Little people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like people who work you know blue collar or or like lower jobs, yeah. and they're you know. They're thrown into really weird scenarios, really mm-hmm. absurd, uh, you know, um, moments in their lives, and, and, uh, and it's like, oh man, this this could be anybody, you know, mm-hmm. this, this could yeah, be that true. person who, who the, that gas station attendant that I that I talk to every day, you know, whatever. Yeah. It's really cool that way, like in my film. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, so let's take a little break. We'll come back, and we're going to get into Abdullah's nomination for your first. Coen Brothers watch if you're new to their catalog and that is The Big Lebowski yes sir alright cool however you're taking part in this episode remember to reach out to us on social media on Twitter at MRML Podcast and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Movies Ruin My Life or by hashtagging Movies Ruin My Life wherever you're talking about movies thanks (laughs) that's awkward as shit All right, so we're back, and Mr. Abdullah. Hey guys, let's get uh, into it. So, I'm gonna be talking about the Big Lebowski, which uh, was the first Coen Brothers movie I watched. Um, kind of inspired me in a way that few movies have at the time, just because I I thought the dude was super cool. It was just like, man, I want to be like that guy. <laughs> to like to the, the, to the dude. yeah, to the point where I started drinking White Russians. <laughs> like dressed up as him for Halloween. Uh it was yeah, it was fun. Um everyone thought I was Jesus. Um the one person like thought, knew I was a dude, which is cool. Um so I I watched it again uh yesterday or the day before. Um I I I I missed something that I you know the first couple times that I'd watched it which was um Essentially, what struck me was uh, without the pettiness of the two Lebowskis, uh, the, the two male Lebowskis, uh, none of the movie would have happened. Like no. the fa- the fact that he was that upset about his rug that tied the ro- tied the room together. <laughs> he went to you know the other the other Lebowski and uh, spoke to him. Actually, I, I didn't realize. Uh, I, I sort of was reminded that Philip Seymour Hoffman made. His small appearance yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. is really cool. I was like, man, I, I forgot he was there. Um, 
but uh, the, sort of the pettiness from the other Lebowski, which was, you know, he could have easily given him a rug and Absolutely. not had to worry about it. <laughs> but instead, he's like, you know, you get nothing to, like, leave my house. You know, so he, he decides to tell uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character that uh, the guy told him that he could have a rug, any any rug in the house. And he leaves uh, after meeting Bunny uh, for the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it, it's uh, it just really struck me that there would have been no conflict, there would have been nothing, <laughs> had it not been for that initial confusion and then the pettiness that occurred from you know them not letting letting go of this little thing, right? Brilliance um, and simplicity. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's like th- like that plot point makes the movie, right? I mean, w- without it. There's there's no movie to be had. Yeah, the mechanism uh, is literally a rug. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like exactly. the description on the back cover. It's like, well, the rug really tied the room together nicely. <laughs> Put yeah. the movie in. Yeah, um, and, and I mean, there's, there's a few things that occurred to me. Uh, I, I I read about this a little later, but uh, there's like a conspiracy theory um, because. Uh, the day that so so he go he goes to the grocery store towards the start of the movie to get his half and half, uh, which is part of his uh, you know is needed for uh, the uh, the white Russians, the the Caucasians as he as he calls them <laughs> at, at the bowling alley, but uh, he you know he writes out a sixty nine cent check. He's by check. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> he writes out this check, and uh, the date on the check is September eleventh, nineteen ninety one. Oh. Which is exactly mm-hmm. ten years before nine eleven, obviously. But uh, he looks up, and in the grocery store, there's a TV playing George H. W. Bush talking about how the aggression from the Kuwaitis will not stand. I was like, man, wow, what? <laughs> like, what? What are what are the odds? Like that, Whoa, almost that was as weird. bad as that Chris Carter one. <laughs> literally made a TV yeah, show. Made it was uh, yeah, it's really really down, interesting. Yeah. I was like, man, what? That, that's, and then there's the backdrop backdrop of of the Gulf War, obviously going mm-hmm. on at the time, which is like, man, this is that's how such a crazy coincidence. It's so strange. It's like that I, band, I am the World Trade Center, and their <laughs> album 911 was an inside job, which came out before 911. Whoa. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a band called I Am The World Trade Center. Oh, I see. Uh, there was also the... Anyway. Uh, <laughs> this is like a rapper who was going to release an album on 9-11, I think, with, with like the, the, the towers on it. Oh. That's going to be weird. Um, <laughs> Don't forget that 9-11 destroyed Macy Gray's career. Her second album came out on 9-11. People were just like... Jesus. I'm making a dismissive <laughs> gesture for those of you at home. <laughs> um, so, yeah. I, I, I don't know. Um the entire world just collectively made a dismissive <laughs> gesture <laughs> at Macy Gray's <laughs> sophomore release. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was this movie that that you know it's about a guy who doesn't give a shit, but uh, cares so much about his rugs that he's willing to go to the ends of the earth to uh, you know Get stand that up. room tied back. Together. Well, yeah, like stand up for himself to the extent where it's like uh, you know um, I'll I'll do whatever it takes. Uh, and, and the fact that it leads to a kidnapping plot that, you know, we thought you're thinking, you know, you, you assume that the kidnapping plot is real mm-hmm. until you see Bunny's toes uh, as she's driving, <laughs> driving down the road. And it's like, oh, they're all there. Mm-hmm. Holy shit. Like, even when you see her driving the car, you're like, oh, I guess she escaped. Yeah. 
she's still missing a toe probably and then you see it and it's like huh all right she is fucking with us the whole time it's interesting too with that two quick points to jump in on you and i apologize that's what i do here i cut people off and then they they give me dirty looks so don't worry about it (laughs) i'm used to it um i apologize two things quickly one about the toe i love how that uh has been replicated in other neo-noir that very move say for example brick with the cigarette flick these sorts of things um and ryan johnson don't you fuck up star wars buddy (laughs) last jedi better be great i love brick though so i'm optimistic um other thing um the idea of a neo-noir um this kind of like stoner noir it's so interesting because i think this film is the first instance for me as a young man that i realized that the genre or the concept of neo-noir could work in not a dark and brooding fashion right now obviously this is kind of a simplistic take on it and that he's more or less playing a detective role which isn't inherent in all noir films and visually not really noir these sorts of things but um in the writing it is very much that um and when I, at the time when I thought of neo noir, I very much thought of things like Blade Runner, for example, which uh, is is also dystopian and dark and brooding and these sorts of things. Um, and the Lebowski is a a really fresh take on that with this Sam Elliott narrating cowboy character, and um, it's 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 like. It, it is when you're watching it because of the mix of genres, the comedy elements, the um, the the classic detective movie elements, and these sorts of things. Um, and again, another example like Fargo with this brilliant ensemble cast, or like all of their films, yeah. um, you almost feel as disoriented as perhaps Stoner would. Yeah, I, I feel like uh, it transcends it transcends a lot of those uh, you know things that you associate with. With uh, like you said, neo noir, but like you expect it to be a little darker. But you have like his dingy apartment, yeah. but you also have the neon like sheen of of the bowling alley, mm-hmm. and then you have like uh, like the the porn king's uh, mm-hmm. you know sprawling house with this party happening. You know, it's yep. it's uh, and it's, the fucking pencil, yeah, it's <laughs> the pencil and the drawing it's of a, the dick. It's a dick, yes. It's like, <laughs> uh. but uh, and I love uh, Totoro's the Jesus character. Yeah, I'm gonna fuck you in the ass, man. It's like I can't do Sunday. Yeah, that so. guy can't be a whole fucking movie, though. I don't know why the internet is. I don't like praying either. for this to happen. Yeah, right, let me jump in the a little Jesus bit man. and just say that uh, it took me two viewings to get the to like the movie. Only you know, as the quirky, clever, funny film it is, because it had been so rammed down my throat in the circles I run in, uh, you know, as this fucking holy grail of, uh, I mean, the cult-like fascination with it. Even the Coen brothers don't get it, but um, (laughs) it's just not an ideal viewing experience to sit there and wait to be transformed as a viewer by some iconic moment. And it's a problem inherent to any movie that's, you know, ubiquitous in the culture or important to the culture absolutely so i almost wish there was a way to watch a movie without having awareness of it's a crude critical like no claim. context yeah because well, yeah, like i say like sure. a movies guy like a bubble. i like this yeah movies like a guy like say bob <laughs> dylan or neil young he'll, he'll release a new album and the half the review is about his career up to that point you know it's impossible yeah. to separate it so i'd just been told like it was this funny amazing and then when i saw it i was like okay it's a funny movie 
I love the car crash when he drops the joint in his garage. <laughs> I love the scattering of the ashes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anything with the Ends bowling all alley, over them, yeah. it's great. But I don't think it's miles better than it. I mean, I, I, I think I they have six or seven amazing films, and it's it is one of them. But I don't think it's uh, different enough or better, more better to inspire uh, the cult-like devotion it literally has as well, a festival I, every I, summer. I, 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 yeah, there's there's like a tenth annual now, you know, yeah. like uh, probably on to fifteen now. Plus, but, but yeah, but but the the crazy, yeah, I I to your point about um, seeing things in a bubble. Uh, I feel that way a lot when when I when I so this movie came out in '98 and it was after Fargo. Everyone had you had to feel like you had to compare it. How have they progressed? How have they how have they moved on from Fargo, for example? Like I'll listen to an album from an artist that I really like, and I can't listen to it on you know for its own merit. I have mm-hmm. to say, well, this isn't as good as the la- or like they've done this differently and. I don't like this about that. Like, like, just yeah. listen to, just watch the movie and see how you <laughs> feel. Um, and, and, and I uh, like about about movies where someone will say, "Okay, this is the you know this sort of um, superlative thing that happens with with media now, where people tell you this is the greatest movie ever, and like you have to feel this way about it." And like, yeah, you could watch Lebowski and go, "Well, I mean, it was pretty good, but." Wasn't the best thing I've ever seen, you know. Like not it's, strengthening your point, Chief. Was it, was, it's, it's one of my it's one of my favorite movies. It was no, perceived. Sure. It was perceived as slight when it came out, wasn't it? Oh, like as it, a follow up to Fargo. To Fargo, I yes. Think, yeah. yeah. Could I ask you something on your point, though, Danny? Do you feel as though this film, in terms of its cult like status, follows? Um, a, in terms of, um, it it follows a similar trend to say, for example, the cult like status of a film like Fight Club. Yeah, where you know that the film was good, and and maybe you hit the film at a certain point in your life, and and now because of it, you've been able to say, for example, with a director like Fincher, um, taking a, a film like Gone Girl or something like that, and because of Lebowski, you you're now able to say, for example, taking a film like No Country and understand kind of those um, emotional beats and what you know what you're what you are going to be interpreting because it's still as much as obviously any artist is trying to make something different and make something unique in every instance um you're still it's technically communication between two people whether directly or through another medium which in this case film uh, and you're still talking to the same person so whether Devin and i are talking about films or whether we're talking about current events there's still a, a similar beat to it um which definitely would merit or lend a great deal of merit to it as a, as a first watch because you know if it had this um, resonance on culture in nineteen circa nineteen ninety eight or the early two thousands even, um, it it goes it, it would inherently have the same resonance for someone who hadn't seen it that's experiencing it for, for the first time in the same way. I I um I was actually between uh, Fargo and The Big Lebowski when mm. we were when we were picking. I let Abdul pick first, sure. yeah. and I'm well, I'm happy with you. the way that it He's... the way that it turned out because I do think Fargo is definitely between the two. My favorite um, uh, film, especially having having rewatched Fargo uh, just now, it, it had been much longer uh, since I had seen it than than Lebowski. But I think there's there's a patience that I needed to get to that point. I think yeah. I'm I'm at a point now uh, at. Uh, 30, 30 years old. <laughs> <laughs> 
where I'm, where I'm, the big I'm still trio. a kid at heart. I'm still, a, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, I have a patience now that I didn't have then. Yeah. And especially, you know, having, having, um, having, having just, just the breadth of content that I've experienced, I think I'm more, uh, I, I'm able to give Fargo more of a benefit of the doubt than I would have at the time. I don't think I enjoyed it the first time I watched it, to be honest. I, think so I was fairly either, young. Yeah. I was like Probably 12, yeah. 13 years old or something. And I was like, this is it, – it's so fleshed out that that a lot of it, uh, especially to, to a younger person, can seem uh, just pointless, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and – a lot of those scenes are drawn out for the purpose of building tension and and really sort of sort of um, um, revealing uh, traits about a character to you that um, that it's difficult to see the importance of when you're not used to that type of of, mm. of film work. Whereas Lebowski, I feel like it's just constant. It's just it's, it's in your face. Yeah, yeah, it's all it's like short vignettes. It's not these drawn out sequences. It's like. Here's a character. Here's them at their most absurd, um, you know, and and then here's how they tie into the plot. Now let's move on to the next one. Yeah, it's, I, I it's, think I think Joel has talked about how for for that movie specifically, I think he's talked about how the plot is not as important as the scenes, right? Like mm-hmm. it's uh, a a good plot lends itself to really good scenes and vice versa. And he's talked about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, with relation to this, and then like, I guess uh, Raymond Chandler, who was sort of an inspiration for this, ha- ha- had talked about the same thing. Um, I think, like for for me, uh, you know, I, I mentioned uh, sort of being an admiration of of the dude uh, when I was twenty, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I watched it again this week. I thought, man, this guy's kind of a loser, <laughs> like, yeah. you know. But he, he's a lovable loser. But he's he's kind Absolutely. of an idiot, right? Like, it's, and, and I uh, same with like Walter and Donnie. <laughs> These guys are, yeah, Donnie. You know? yeah. Uh, like uh, you know, at the time, I was like, man, these guys are so cool. Yeah, <laughs> they, they don't care about anything, but. Uh, when they go to yeah. that kid's house, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and the Ferrari, or yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> just a kid. <laughs> they found like his homework in the car when when they when he got the car back, and he's like, "Let's go fuck this guy up." <laughs> it's like, it's just a kid. <laughs> what does what does Walter say? This is what happens this when is, this is when you this is what happens when you fuck a fuck a stranger in the <laughs> yeah. uh, or or as as you had in the uh, in the censored version when you find a stranger in the Alps. <laughs> this is what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps. I was like, huh? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. And Lebowski, I loved the first time I saw it. Yeah. Fargo, it was maybe the third watch that I was like, this is really a great movie, you know? And and I think that's obviously something that's, that's very important for a movie that's going to introduce you to somebody's body of work, you know? This I, I think movie it's, is just... uh, it's probably uh, what we were talking about earlier with these characters being... You know, larger than life, uh, but like with Fargo, it's a little bit more subtle the, mm. the characters. But like with this movie, it's it's very in your face. The characters are, you know, at their most sort of extreme at all times, right? Like it's, mm-hmm. um, and they are uh, quite often based on real people that, that the Coens knew, but um, it's it's so elevated in every way. Like it's it's not. Uh, 
There's there's no like they don't uh, sort of stultify it or bring it down in any way. Um, you know, like the dude is always at, at a ten. Mm. You know, <laughs> where where does the movie take place? It's like California, right? Like yeah. LA. Yeah. Now that as well is interesting to me because it's it's almost as though. Um, all of his movies take place in these desolate places where you would really see kind of one type of character, a more homogenous environment, you know? Mm. If you were to look at, at Fargo or, um, you know, Raising Arizona, I don't know. Um, I, I think that one has both Joel and Ethan as the director. Because mm. you said his. So I, was, I wasn't oh. sure if you were speaking of one of them. Uh, no, yeah, sorry, 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 yeah. There's. There's um, so, okay. But, um, but... Uh, Big Lebowski takes place in a in a a setting that is also more conducive to that that type of of just just much louder, much different mm-hmm. uh, characters. Just yeah, it, w- it wouldn't have worked in the Midwest. Yeah, you know, in a quiet town, it wouldn't it wouldn't have worked as well or, or at all. Real like it would have uh, the movie wouldn't have been very good. Yeah, mm-hmm. but, especially uh, with the porno element. Yeah, like exactly. And it's like there's there's a very like glamorous sort of sheen to it, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's a shiny movie. <laughs> Julianne Moore's character Maud. in the film, yes. uh, and she's uh, also has Boogie Nights running around this period of time. Two really amazing stand-up performances, sure. um, and clearly an anchor for this piece. Um, obviously, as you get into some of the the the, the drug-induced flashback sequences, or not flashback sequences, kind of. Uh, Alternate reality sequences. That scene with like that. Uh, him flying yeah. as a Bob Dylan playing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, and then her, the, how how she's introduced, like in that fucking harness. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Spraying paint over a canvas. <laughs> oh, naked. it's so good. Flinging these brushes. Super kinky. Just like yeah. weird shit. <laughs> she's a really, um, I think, underestimated. Actor a lot of times. She's very versatile. She's like she's oh, got a diverse uh, body of work. Like absolutely, I don't think I I knew who she was when I watched the movie. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is this is a great she's performance. Yeah, yeah. She's, she's fantastic. Yeah. And one last thing, I wanted to mention a quote from Ethan uh, from that talk, that same talk that we were talking about earlier that uh, you and I were watching, Danny, um, where Ethan says. Um, with Lebowski, you figure you've done something right if you can uh, push a guy out of his wheelchair and not get a single piece of hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's it's very true um, and brilliant. Like you know that you're hitting the right comical beats, and it uh, there's not a moment in the film where you question anything that you see on screen. And uh, I respect the fuck out of that. I really, really do. Yeah, you, you feel like everything that happens to people, uh, maybe maybe besides Donnie uh, ending up dead, uh, they, they kind of had coming to them. Yeah, you know, you, you never feel like, uh, oh man, that's that's unfair. That's that sucks for that person. You, it's like, okay, well, fair enough. You you kind of you kind of did stuff to deserve that. It really has has comedy in there for everybody too. Maybe part of the the. Um, the reason why I was able to get in it, into it is at such young age is is just the the jokes like the nihilists and like mm-hmm. you know uh, Julianne Moore in the bed after they they have sex the way the way she she's like increases the chance of conception <laughs> just the way the way that she says it is just this Brilliant. this the delivery is just perfect and and just very very overt humor mm-hmm. but as well there's some things that you wouldn't. Uh, 
you know, at that age, at least I wouldn't have understood like the, um, the fact that John Goodman has, has converted to Judaism to get married. And then now he's, he's divorced. divorced, but he's still following like just a, an extremely like orthodox set of, of principles, like like observing yeah, the, the I Shabbos. Can't, I can't, I can't, uh, I can't bowl on, on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> like just, just uh, you know that. that subject. Yeah. And that, and that's a very central uh, like plot in the the movie that yeah. just had gone. Well, we were talking about what Danny was saying about uh, about like. Exploring, you know, uh, Judea, like, you know, people ju- exploring like people who are Jewish mm-hmm. and their sort of culture and what what it means. Uh, it's maybe it's introspective. Maybe they're sort of trying to look inside and th- think about how they were raised or how they came up. Uh, all the all the little, um, you know, traditions and things that they that they follow. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it goes back to that. Um, as it happens with True Grit, having also been uh, a movie with um, Jeff Bridges, mm-hmm. but, yeah, excellent. It's another guy who made another, you know, made another, another movie yeah, another revolving uh, character yeah. and or player in in the Cohen's work. Yeah. Any final thoughts on the Big Lebowski, gentlemen? All right, watch We're this gonna, movie. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's great. <laughs> All right, let's take a little break. Come back and and I'll. Uh, talk about my film nomination for your first Coen Brothers watch, which is No Country for Old Men. Uh, can I just add one point before we move on? Did, did, um, could, could maybe be a side quote. It has nothing to do with anything, but do you think that movie killed the Eagles for like a generation of people? It did to an extent for me. I hate the fucking Eagles, man. There's a beverage here, man. (laughs) Like, like I, I don't know. I don't hate. I, I didn't hate the Eagles. I do. I think. <laughs> no, yeah. I think I'm more able. I to really was like, Eagles, man, man, maybe they do suck. Yeah. And I was wrong all along. <laughs> Life in the fast lane is so garbage. Just everything they. I, I feel like everything they do is garbage now. <laughs> I'm like, thanks, the big. <laughs> thanks, the Coens. I used to like them. Thank you for clearing that up for me. <laughs> All right, so we're back, and I'm up last, and my film is No Country for Old Men. Now, a lot of the times I pick something older in, uh, when we do these director watch more episodes, and uh, I, you know it's quite refreshing to actually have something fairly recent from, from their film catalog um, that I, I feel is incredibly resonant. Um, this, much like some of the compliments I paid to True Grit is a really unique piece visually. Um, we've talked about the stark soundtrack of the film. There's basically zero music. Um, the characters, like we talked about with Fargo, very rich, very developed, and also you've got probably one of the most menacing villains of a recent film. Um, you talked about earlier, Danny, how this is a fairly um, loyal adaptation of the Cormac McCarthy novel. Yeah. Um, with the exception of a lot of the the internal monologue kind of stuff, the narrative stuff taken out. 
and it works really, really well. A lot of filmmakers, if they had adapted the same piece, probably would have leaned on a lot of that material. And somehow the Coens were able to, with the piece, actually really, really strip the fucking thing down. And there's never a moment where you feel as though there should be someone explaining the fucking movie to you. Mm-hmm. I also love the something that something that they do really well. We've talked about the shots that they do really well, and and one thing that stands out to me with this film is how much intent there is in the camera, um, driving character motivation specifically, and it's something that that is is very common in their work, but maybe not quite as overt as this film and it's one of the main reasons why i kind of picked it as as my my choice film um and i was kind of sitting on this one a lot of times obviously we pick uh out out of order from the and i generally get the last pick not that i'm you know i generally get the film i want just to be clear (laughs) but this time around i genuinely did get the film that i wanted um because i I feel as though there's something really special and really compelling about this movie. From the time that it opens up and you you first are introduced to Javier Bardem's Anton Sugar and you you don't see his face through that whole opening sequence. You see him being escorted into the car and you just see the black shadow over his face and then loading in that like cattle prod air gun thing. Mm. Or not prod, whatever, the, the air gun. Um, all the way up to the pretty much... Uh, through, through the through the narration, the whole phone call and the phone call, yeah, and that's and you see him still in the background taking uh, his his handcuffs up from behind his back around his legs, etc. And really, the first visual sticking visual of a character that you're going to spend a predominant amount of this film with is the moment when he's choking that police officer and breathing heavily, so heavily that he almost looks like a fish laying on the floor with, like, gills almost, like, pumping in his throat. And it's very... It's it's an amazing performance, uh, brilliantly casted. Um, but the performance is there on the page, which is also a reason why I... I in large part, why I, I chose the film. What I was talking about, though, to continue on with the idea of the shots is... it is you're driven to that opinion of of Shiger, of mm-hmm. Javier Bardem's character. You don't have a choice of that. Same as the entire film, you have this character that you're kind of rooting for because he's kind of backwoods smart in, in uh, Brolin's character, who, uh, Llewellyn. And, and, and every time you think he's hardened and he's going to get away, he always slips up and it's always his heart that does it. And I love that. Um, but even in those moments, you're still very drawn to the visuals. Well, why is he going back out to the um, to the site of the drug deal? Because the guy asked for water. But they don't say that. They right. show him filling up a bottle of water. When he comes back to the house later, they've had two parallel shots. They show him hiding the machine gun under the um, trailer in the insulation. And then they show the reverse, him pulling it out with his wife looking down on him uh, pulling the gun out after the instance. So these two, one kind of evading the situation and then one again parroting the the original intent in that he's now evading by just fucking leaving and he's now needs protection before he, he had to hide from it. Now he's embracing it that he's running. Um, just quickly, 
I wanted to talk about a few shots. Again, going with the idea that this film kind of is is a film that you can put on cruise control and and brain-wise and be just driven through and don't feel like you're being pandered to, but also feel like you're having a cinematic experience. Um, the TV shots, um, the the parallel of the Tommy Lee Jones character when he comes to the, the trailer uh, having his sip of milk and you have that great shot in the TV mm-hmm. and the one that comes before that with Shiger sitting on the couch holding the bottle of milk and it cuts to that shot again where it's just the outline of him. Um, and I love the... the much it's very very similar the dialogue between the police officers in Fargo and the police officers in in this film but of course with Tommy Lee Jones he has a lot of he's a lot more snarky and he doesn't hold back that that he does know what's going on so for example he gets very upset um when they don't find a bullet inside the guy that was uh, mm-hmm. taken out at the side of the road by Shiger. Um he's like, I don't want to think about that while I'm eating, and he just like pushes the pushes the plate away and just has another cup of coffee. He has that moment where they're busting into the trailer, and the deputy pulls up the gun and uh, asks him, "Aren't you going to pull your gun out?" And he says, "No, no, I'm going to hide behind you." <laughs> <laughs> These sorts of things, um, and his relationship his relationships are are the most human. But you still don't ever really connect with anyone in this film. You're kind of simultaneously rooting for everyone, and I think it's because when you we watch this film, you inherently shut off and I, I and just kind of absorb everything, and that's brilliant. So you have all these characters, and you're going with every individual situation. So while you're cheering for Llewellyn, you're also cheering for Shiger to catch him. Mm-hmm. You know, while you're cheering for um, Shiger to catch him, you're also cheering for Tommy Lee Jones, the sheriff, to catch get to him first. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't ever really cheer for the the uh, the drug dealers, though, mind you. No, and you don't. Cheer and you don't for cheer for Woody, Woody Harrelson. Harrelson. Yeah, <laughs> <clears throat> he's in and out. Yeah, that door <laughs> shot, by the way, when Shiger does catch up for the second time after the hotel with uh, with um, with Llewellyn, just after Llewellyn realizes the tracker is in the suitcase, oh. he takes it out and he puts it on. And he has the shotgun, and he's sitting by the door, and you see the two feet come up under the door. Stop. And then Continue. walk away, take right. the light bulb out, come back, and you see the and then the the door lock hits him in the mm-hmm. chest, and then he blows the shotgun. Brilliant! And again, you're you're almost always surprised when Llewellyn gets a hand up on this stone cold killer because you're committed from that right. first scene. You're committed to how. How Shiger is almost like the fucking Terminator. I was just, I wrote that down right here. Almost a supervillain. He's mm-hmm. almost beyond human. Yeah. We were talking about that the other night. Yeah. Scary. And he, he just this incredible stalking presence. So when Shiger blows out the back window of that pickup truck that Llewellyn tries to commandeer and kills the driver, and then Llewellyn turns the corner and then fake crashes so that he can set up a trap, um, you're almost like, hey, this guy's pretty, this guy's pretty savvy. Uh, and you're playing both sides. You're just this. You're this lump of putty watching this film. And I love that idea in a first watch because the idea of a f- first watch experience with any director uh, that I've ever had. I, I don't. We talked about this recently with Jodie Foster. Um, that I had a similar experience. I didn't really know what to take out of her catalog or like her now evolving catalog. I didn't know what directorial traits, what emotional beats I should recognize 
and I love I love kind of going in as a blank slate, not interpreting anything, just see where I go with the film. And I think this is one of the richest experiences in the Cohen's catalog. Yes, for for that, where you can it, it, it's it's like sitting in a boat, putting the sail up, and you go wherever the wind takes you. And I love that idea. Um, and I, I I I don't know. I like a good cat and mouse. I like a good cat and mouse. I like the richness of the characters we talked about. Desert the, iconography, yeah. the sparseness of the landscape, well, yeah. sparseness all o- overall, mm-hmm. right? Sparseness, sparseness is, in, the, in the soundtrack, is a recurring obviously. theme. Yeah, it's it's it's, uh, it's wonderful that way. You've already convinced me to watch it again. So yeah, it's good. Uh, <laughs> it's been years. Like I, I think I watched it when it first came out, and I haven't watched it since. I think it'll. And the last thing I'll I'll mention before I'll open up the floor to anyone who wants to either help or knock me down is that coin toss sequence in the gas station. Yeah. And if you want to know why the Coens can do comedy as well as they can, then watch how tense that scene is using the exact same mechanisms and how chilling it is. And how they're able to manipulate you like a fucking puppet. And you will understand why you laugh at at their comedies and why you fear for characters that you're so emotionally connected to in their, I guess, more thriller-esque films. Say, for example, particularly the early part of their catalog, something like Blood Simple or, or um, even Miller's Crossing or something like that. On that point, too, I do think it is the, the least funny of their catalog, maybe mm-hmm. of all of them. I mean, yeah. there there are moments of of real intense uh, yeah. dark humor, but n- not a whole lot that you're. Yeah, you're... most of it comes from Brolin. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, Harrelson, who's such a throwaway character, but yeah. that's his intent. That's <laughs> yeah. his intent in the script is that he's he's there essentially almost for like he's a he's a, a red herring cat and mouse kind of situation of Shiger and then it's a it's a bait and switch and I love that but mm-hmm. I won't I don't want to give it away one thing that we touched upon earlier uh that that this this movie does really well is uh it makes you cheer for people who you know aren't savory characters they're not mm-hmm. good people but you you're cheering for everybody you're cheering mm-hmm. for like you said uh Josh Brolin's character you're also cheering for um Javier, Javier Bardem's character to catch him but mm-hmm. you're also cheering you know it's like uh, I, these aren't good people yeah. the same thing with with most of their movies i mm-hmm. feel you know the, but 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 you want them to succeed you want yeah. good things for them <laughs> yeah yeah despite you know it's uh, so interesting how Javier you were talking about this and again i won't give it away devin but uh, how he just kind of, how he his arc in the film comes to a close it's so very interesting uh and 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 almost well it's extremely abrupt and i love that it's and and it, and that feels very i feel very at home with that sort of conclusion to a character arc in a Cohen film versus say for example if i was to go into any other pretty much any other director with the exception of maybe a handful of tarantino or something yeah, like that. a noted kind of uh similar stylistic uh character wise uh, i i you know it's it's it i feel really at home in those moments so for some reason, I was thinking about referring to those as vibesmen. <laughs> vibesmen, <laughs> yeah. He's a. I'll put it in among the top 
vibesmen yeah. that are out there. Perfect. <laughs> or that both of them are are excellent vibesmen. Vibesmen. <laughs> yeah. Um Quite a I new think term. I think that the movie right down to its title No Country for Old Men about you know getting older and being useless is that's a major theme. I think that it's about fate and inevitability and I mean I can't really put it into a coherent argument, but, like, there's the scene where Tommy Lee Jones visits what I assume is a retired police officer. He's mm-hmm. paralyzed, the guy who says he makes one pot of coffee a week. Yeah. And um, that guy says to Tommy Lee Jones, um, well, Tommy Lee Jones expresses trepidation about his job, how he doesn't really like it anymore, and doesn't know if he has the stones or the balls to do it. And then the retired officer says, uh, you can't stop what's coming. That's mm-hmm. vanity. Um the idea that the world is something that happens to us. We mm-hmm. don't really control our fate or make the mark we would like to make on the world. So that's shown with uh, Anton Churga? Sugar. Sugar. Even like he can't escape the kind of vagaries of fate. They're getting hit. And so uh, at the end. So you have to be kind of vigilant, right? So there's a part where Josh Berlin's character says he's retired in the Mexican hospital bed. Mm-hmm. And he sort of loses his vigilance after that. Like the scene at the hotel just before he dies when he says, I know what beer leads to, ma'am. She's like, beer leads to more beer. And he smiles. He gets distracted mm-hmm. by that woman. And that's what... And wherever he strays, it's, from the very first moment of the uh, that he strays from being like cold-hearted and, and, and driven for his own, uh, you know, means, every time that he strays, even the tiniest bit, that's what kind of... Um, puts him in in Hazard's way. Yeah, when he doesn't act like the machine-like guy who's coming after him, yeah. when he allows his humanity and his his affections to got, uh, take over from logic. Yeah, that's yeah. funny. Um, I yeah, I was uh, I was gonna say on on uh, that front that it's like it's almost as if you can. You can picture how each one of these guys used to be. Mm. For yeah. for every single one of them, not, nothing is explained about their, their backstory. <clears throat> but you know that this is something that they each individually, like, uh, could have handled much better <laughs> b- before. Excellent point, like, yes. You, you can see this, like, the history that... Absolutely. That, that, uh, Llewellyn's that, tracking abilities and these sorts of things. Yeah, right. and, like, Ant- Anton, like, he, this guy must have been the craziest, like... Hitman yeah. in his in his in his prime, but yeah. this is not it. Yeah. This is that is not what you're seeing. <laughs> the uh, when he takes off his shoes outside the hotel room, these sorts of things are all yep. very uh, indicative of of someone who probably, in all seriousness, would excel in any field because of the creativity there. Yeah, it's so very... that's what you're getting at is sort of the getting older fate the inevitability of like they are past their prime yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's like it's the, the attention to detail time. and the creative it, it, the creativity and the attention to detail sort of fades mm-hmm. uh you're not as vigilant you're not you know as focused as, as you ought to have been focused yeah that's a good word because like tommy yeah. lee jones there's a lot of scenes in this movie where he's squinting he, yeah he just does not understand the level of violence that's happening right he has the glasses. Yeah. there's it's, the great shitstorm like lines subconscious uh, way of portraying yeah. yeah the um if this isn't it then it'll do until it gets here line which is great yeah and i guess um the last part my point the very beginning with that opening highway shot um the uh something like sure i'll be a part of this world yeah like a cog in the greater 
system that grinds you down kind of thing. Yeah, it's true that inevitability is an overarching theme of the piece. Like the coin scene you mentioned. Yeah. It's been traveling towards you your whole life. The last 20 years. <laughs> Which is interesting, too, because it's another... They don't, they're not overt about the fact that this film is, of course, set in the late 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, or yeah, they're so. not. It somehow doesn't feel like a period piece. It doesn't at all. It's no. just too relentless in its momentum mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Well, like well, you were saying about especially when you see it, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, but it, more so with this one. Yeah, for somehow yeah. the desert swallows time up somehow. Right. It it doesn't draw attention to you know the the setting as much as uh, others other movies might. Like mm-hmm. Boogie Nights or something, which is yeah. so seventies. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and this I, is around I, the same time. And yeah, it's like, mm-hmm. right. The only time that it really became apparent to me even is uh, when uh, 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 Anton is, is going to the pharmacy, I, I was going to say. Oh, yeah, true, And it's just true. this completely, like, this isn't what they look like. <laughs> and that was that was the only moment where, where I, I was, like, really taken out of it and was mm. like, oh, yeah, like, this yeah. is... Uh, the transponder <laughs> moment or the Vietnam, the American crossing guard. Mm. Like, yeah. You know, gets him a ride into town because he fought... <laughs> Even that, yeah, that great line, yeah, that uh, you, you shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> doing what? Hitchhiking. And then he kind of laughs because he's holding like a million dollars or something on his fucking lap. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, hitchhiking's real fucking dangerous. I'm, I'm, <laughs> like, the Terminator is after me. <laughs> does, does, um, a Coen Brothers Terminator. <laughs> a really important point that I don't even remember. Does anybody get the money? He throws it over the the bridge at the crossing mm. uh, to hide it. But does does anybody get that money? They... The Mexicans who kill him at the end grab it from the hotel. I think. Yeah, that's what I'm assuming. But it's not in the hotel, is it? It's... No, he retrieves. No, he it. retrieves it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because I I was gonna say it, it's um similar in to the grassy to, banks. Uh, to it Far- would be similar to Fargo. Because in Fargo, that that Buscemi <laughs> hides that money and is is going back for it. Nobody, you know, the guy who who owns that farm maybe finds maybe. it. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Literally, <laughs> no one knows it's there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's awful. So the, the like the entire point of all of the action up to this mm-hmm. you know up up to the very end is, yeah. is just all for naught no nobody yep now one fault that i will give this movie and it's kind of a double-edged blade here because i'm also laying praise on it here but um is the exchanges between steven root and woody harrelson in the office mm-hmm. with the there's a lot of uh, where he talks about anton Chigurh at length which to be honest doesn't really need to be there, mm-hmm. but you need the motivation of Harrelson getting in. It doesn't work as well on the telephone. It also doesn't um, lay out Harrelson's kind of meticulous nature quite as clearly in the sense of, um, say, for example, the counting the floors and there's one missing, this sort of thing. But, um, yeah, but to go- I still like it as a narrative tool. I still like it as... Uh, it's a refreshing way to do exposition in the context of that film. It's not going to work for everyone, but it's refreshing for them there because they've used narrative, uh, like in terms of a, a Tommy Lee Jones voiceover, to really accomplish very little in terms of propelling the story forward. So it's kind of like you have this opening sequence with these sprawling landscapes and Tommy Lee Jones being like, well, fuck you guys. I'm not telling you shit. And then... And then you kind of bring the audience back in, like, okay, okay, come back. With the we'll, exaggerated we'll, exposition. We'll bring you up to speed. Yeah. So, 
I, I like it. I, I I think it's refreshing there because of the way they did it. Because and and because of the way they did it, uh, as they they would say, and we've seen them say in interviews talking about this sort of thing, it's not cheating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it depends on what mood I'm in. Because at some point, like I mean, it sounds trailer ready. Stephen Root is great in the role. It sounds like it was written for a trailer. Like, is he dangerous compared to what the bubonic plague? Yeah. And then at the end of the scene, are you going to kill me? Well, it depends. Did you see me? Like, it's almost <laughs> Bond villain at that point. But like we said, he is a super villain. But, yeah. I, I think <laughs> I think that out. also works well in terms of conveying. <laughs> Or foreshadowing what is going to come for Harrelson. So, oh I yeah, like that because uh, his death scene is great when yeah. the phone rings and he jumps. Yeah, because he thinks it's the bullet. Bullet comes a little later. Yeah, mm. <laughs> wee bit. In any case, any final thoughts on No Country for Old Men, gentlemen? I'm going to watch it again tonight. Maybe. Excellent. Man, I haven't seen it in Fuck. years. It's yeah. just a masterpiece. It's great. Yeah. That's uh, that's all. All right. Final thoughts on the Coens. In general, they're writing their uh, visual style, their taste, anything that you'd like to lend your interpretation of their of their work. I, I think I'm uh, open to anything. I think one thing is like there's. I feel like there's no one Cohen movie which is like emblematic of their entire like work you know body of work Mm -hmm. there's no one movie that you can put your finger on and say this is the coen brothers you know uh, at their quintessential you know like this Mm -hmm. this isn't it's so it's so diverse and and there's there's so many different things they do well um that it's you know you you look at a movie like inside uh, inside lewin davis for example versus the big lebowski or fargo and it's like it's the same guys Mm -hmm. that's crazy there's certain things that that'll be similar or that are that are done the same way, but I, I think they're just a very, you know, very versatile, um, you know, uh, pair of directors. Yep, absolutely. You know, all all of the movies that we chose have kind of this like personified karma. Mm-hmm. Somebody who's not who has no no personal uh, vested interest in in. Um, the the plot um but is the the sort of uh you know the vehicle to its 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 conclusion mm-hmm. um i don't know that's kind of uh in, interesting it's not something that um i don't know i guess it's kind of a common thematic thing um to do but i i don't know i think it's they do it really tastefully yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, For me, just perception-wise, it's disappointing to me that uh, for filmmakers of their stature and skill, uh, when they have a new movie come out, it's not like an event. Like when a Tarantino Mm -hmm. comes out, everyone's like, got to go see it, mark your calendar. When a new Coen Brothers comes out, and I'm guilty of this too. Like when Hail Caesar came out, I I didn't even know about it for like a couple weeks. Mm. So I feel like they should be a little more celebrated than they are. Yeah. But like Hail Caesar didn't excite me in any, in, in any the, real like. Yeah, I have no love I, for that era. So really, maybe, I do, but it's. Then again, with Burn After Reading and True Grit, I marked my calendar. I went and saw them because I was still riding high in the No Country for Old Men. That Dan really Wagon. brought them back into the yeah. uh, like guys and like, after yeah. Far, like Fargo, and then ten years later, No Country. Mm. So maybe something's coming this year. Mm. Maybe yeah. Keep funny. keep your eye on the on the on the. Pulse. Internet? I don't know. Keep your eye on the keep movie your, ball. Keep your eye on the pulse. <laughs> That's a thing, right? Keep your eye on 
thing people say. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That's it. Remember, it's... this is just the beginning of the conversation. We want to continue it on with you, and we really do. What film would you guys offer up to a newcomer hmm. to the Coen Brothers catalog? Additionally, what was the first flick that you saw in their body of work? Also... If you haven't watched any Coen Brothers movies, what what rock are you yeah. living under? Please tell us what the fuck is wrong with you. Hey, what are you doing? <laughs> What's wrong with you? You don't watch movies? Yeah. <laughs> so you can reach us on Twitter at Mermel Podcast, at MRML Podcast. Uh, you can also email the show at show at moviesfrommylife.com and visit us online at moviesfrommylife.com as the last part of the email address would imply. Do you guys want to offer up your Twitters? You can find me on Twitter. This is Danny at uh, Leafs Love Hurts. You can <laughs> like find that. me on That's Twitter. Good. This is Devin. <laughs> YR underscore homeboy. If that means you're homeboy. Uh, 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 I don't really use Twitter. Uh, I have a Twitter. It's uh, at Abdullah Nakfi. Um, spell it however you like. I don't, know if <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't really use Twitter. I, I don't. I don't. I don't encourage anyone to follow me. Well, you're <laughs> you're gonna be added this week to the like Mermel, uh Twitter group, like okay, the, cool. the, the the group feed. So if you go to our lists and you follow the list of panelists, you'll you'll get Abdullah's feeds there as well. Perfect. Um, for uh, when he occasionally does more. use Twitter, <laughs> and uh, you can find me. This is Brandon at uh, <laughs> not Brandon Fleet <laughs> on the Twitter. I'm <laughs> he's not he's not clarifying that that, that who he's talking about is Brandon, but is not Brandon Fleet. Yeah. but rather his Twitter is at. Not Brandon. Not Brandon Fleet. That's correct. Same, same on uh, same on Instagram if you want to follow me there. I post pictures from the show. Um, what else do I usually have to say here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, If you're not already subscribed to the show, please do so on whatever your podcatcher of choice is. Slam that subscribe. Smash that fucking like button. Smash the like button. Share us. Do Hit all that, that like shit. button. Smash it. Uh... I know we can do this together. Yeah. <laughs> I know we can do this together. 30,000 likes by Tuesday of next week. You've got seven days. Let's do it. Um, you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio. Pocket Casts, as I learned. Yeah, yeah. I, we just found out that we were on Pocket Casts from yeah. Abdullah. So yeah, there you go. Um, wherever you listen to podcasts, find us there. If we're not where you listen to podcasts, let us know and we'll get there for you. Uh, also, we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash movies from my life. Use the hashtag on all social media, uh, hashtag movies from my life. And we search all that shit out and we share the stuff that you guys, uh, you guys, I don't know, hashtag. I don't know how to phrase that as a fucking verb. In any case, I think that's about it. Get in touch with us. We like to chat about movies if you haven't figured it out. And, uh, and come back and join us. Subscribe, rate, review, all that bullshit. Thanks for hanging out with us. And he's like, I don't fucking know. I wasn't listening. <laughs> 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 <laughs>